When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Do you know what the Babylon Bee is? Have you followed the Babylon Bee? The Babylon Bee is basically just like the onion. Uh, you know, if you Google the Babylon Bee, and the, the first thing that comes up on the website is, it says, fake news you can trust. And then the description of the Babylon Bee, it's a website, the Babylon Bee is your trusted source for Christian news satire. Now, it's the whole, every story that they post is a joke. Every single story they, they post is, is, is a joke. For instance, here's one headline. Um, concern grows after Trump, concern grows over Trump's health um, after he goes 10 minutes let me see here. Let me. There's too many pop-ups. That's my issue with the Babylon Bee. Uh, concern grows after Trump's health after he goes 10 minutes without sending supporters a campaign email. Now that's funny. It's a joke. It's a joke. Then um, you know, it's all sorts of stuff like a soft on sex crime. Supreme Court nominee feeling pretty confident as she's being questioned by roomful of perverts. It's a joke. It's all a joke. Everything, everything the site does is a parody. It's just like The Onion. If you've read The Onion, it's the exact same thing. And uh, it's, you know, maybe a little right-leaning. But I don't even know that it's right-leaning. I mean, I see them make jokes about Trump and everybody else. It's a fake news website. You remember when Jeffrey Gurian was in here and Jeffrey would do all his news uh, you know, like uh, the guy that robbed a uh, bank with his chin, that kind of thing. That's essentially what the Babylon Bee does. It's a little bit more politically oriented than what Jeffrey was doing with the Weekly World News. But I received a call yesterday afternoon. I was I was entertaining my son, young Carmine, and I received a call on. Uh, oh, see, now I'm seeing. That I we had a I had a call at uh, I had a call at three fifty five from our boss Chad Lopez. I missed this call. Uh, now I'm, I'm wondering if it was anything important. Now I didn't see this before. Well, anyway, so I received a call at three eleven. How did I miss that call? Huh. Well, that's concerning. All right. Um, I received this call at three eleven. From my friend John Tobacco, who tells me 
You know what the Babylon Bee is, right? Answer, yes. Did you hear what happened? No. They suspended their Twitter account. Or they locked their Twitter account. You're kidding. What happened? This is what happened. So Twitter has locked the account of the Babylon Bee after they awarded Rachel Levine, the transgender Biden administration official, the title of Man of the Year. Now, this was a reaction to USA Today's naming of Levine, who is Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services, as one of its Women of the Year. Twitter says they will restore the account, which has more than 1.3 million followers, if the B deletes the tweet. But the CEO, Seth Dillon, says he has no intention of doing so. And I, I was all set to talk about this. And it just goes to show you that so often Tucker and I are on the same page. I had Tucker Carlson on the background last night as I was preparing for the show. And I see that he has this fellow from the Babylon Bee, Seth Dillon. This is what Seth Dillon said about why he's not deleting the tweet and why this is so outrageous. But if you make fun of Rachel Levine's ludicrous claim that he's a woman, then you're a hater? Like, how does this work? What are the standards here? There are no standards. At least they're not applied evenly, right? They're applied very unevenly. But this is the the problem with comedy right now is that what our job is supposed to be, like satirists, comedians, and general humorists, our job is supposed to be to poke holes in the popular narrative. I mean, that's what we do. And we're being restricted from doing that. They're literally making these rules and rigging the system where you can't actually poke holes in the popular narrative. You have to promote the popular narrative. And so comedy is, is you're, it's being rendered ineffective, uh, where they're basically making rules about what you can and can't joke about, to the point where we're saying, well, we're going to continue to make these jokes, and if we have to, we'll do it off Twitter. I think this is crazy. Twitter cited their policy on hateful conduct, which states you may not promote violence against, threaten or harass other people on the basis of race, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, religious affiliation, age, disability or serious disease. They were not promoting violence against Rachel Levine. They were making a joke that a transgender person was nominated by USA Today as one of the women of the year. It was a joke. This is a reaction to that. I wouldn't have even read this story if I saw the headline. I would have just kept scrolling. By doing this, they're actually doing the same thing they did with their banning of the Hunter Biden story, the Hunter Biden laptop story. They're actually bringing even more attention to this. And if you click on the Babylon Bee Twitter account, It says, the account you reference has been temporarily blocked for violating our hateful conduct policy. The account owner is required to delete the violative tweet before regaining access to their account. Now, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I have to tell you, my attitude with all these big tech companies especially all these social media companies, is, oh, screw them, they're horrible, they're censoring everybody. Over the last year, I have developed a new appreciation for how difficult it is to run these big tech companies. And and that's sincere, that's not shtick. And the reason for that is because I've been the the admin 
on the Murano radio fans and haters. And initially, I did what Twitter and Facebook did. I let anybody post whatever they wanted. And what happened? People started posting all sorts of stuff that had nothing to do with the show. Other folks got annoyed. Other people started bashing some of the other co- my my colleagues here at the radio station. Other people would start picking on other people or say things that are provocative or say, come to my fundraiser on XYZ date or isn't this politician so great? So I then had to institute post-approval that I have to uh, sit there and determine whether or not this post it, it fits the criteria that we've established or not. It's not something I want to do at all. But because you left to your own devices, Facebook users can't seem to, you know, adhere to the guidelines. They weren't even rules, just guidelines of what we wanted. And I have to tell you, every day somebody posts something that's in this gray area. Is that relevant to the show? Well, I guess it is. Well, I try to construe this as liberally as possible. I only have. 2,400 or 2,500 people in this Facebook group. If you want to join the Facebook group, by the way, just type Morano Radio fans and haters. I cannot imagine needing to worry about moderating content for millions of people, let alone hundreds of millions of people. That is a, a, a gargantuan undertaking, and I imagine a lot of stuff does for them fall into this gray area. That being said, There has to be a modicum of common sense. Twitter knows the Babylon Bee is a parody website. Twitter knows that the Babylon Bee with that story is not calling for violence against Rachel Levine. Twitter knows it's just a silly story. And there's no reason it shouldn't be able to be tweeted. Um. I think this is crazy. And I don't know what the alternative is. I know there are a bunch of um, alternative social media sites that have popped up. You have Rumble. You have Parler. You have Getter. Uh, now I think you're, you're, Donald Trump's launching Truth Social. or Trump, uh, Yeah, Truth Social. And I, I don't want to go on those sites, one, because I don't want to check one more social media account. But also, the thing I like about Twitter is I'm able to use Twitter – almost like I'm reading the paper and I just follow up mostly a bunch of news accounts and newsmakers and they're all out there tweeting things. Whereas that's not the case on, from what I understand on those other platforms. And I like to be able to interact with people who have a bunch of different views. Twitter for all its faults still has people with a bunch of different views. I'm not convinced that that's the case on parlor or getter or any of these other platforms. But I have to say, I was just so disappointed by that and so sick over that. If you have um, thoughts, comments, suggestions, questions, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. It seems like every show we could do a segment on what these big tech companies are going to do next to suppress rather than encourage free speech. 800-848-9222-12345. Six open lines. In about 10 minutes, we're going to talk about the Ukraine situation with Ray McGovern. Ray McGovern is a very controversial guy. He has been, uh, he was a CIA officer for about 30 years, from 1963 to 1990. He actually chaired the National Intelligence Estimate and helped prepare 
the president's daily brief. So he's got uh, quite an exhaustive resume in the intelligence community. Since retiring 30 years ago, he has been very critical of the intelligence community, of United States foreign policy, and he is somebody that has been much more, I'll call it, sympathetic to the um, Putin point of view than what you hear in the rest of the mainstream media. So I want to get his take on what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. And uh, then coming up in the 3 o'clock hour, we're continuing our series interviewing all of the candidates for uh, governor of New York State, a Republican, Democrat, and Independent. And uh, coming up in three at the th- in the 3 o'clock hour, we have Larry Sharp. Larry Sharp is the Libertarian nominee for governor of New York State. So he surprised a lot of people four years ago, did much better than a lot of folks were anticipating. And uh, I am looking forward to our conversation coming up at 3.30. But if you want to weigh in on this Twitter situation with the Babylon Bee, uh, give me a call, 800-848-9222. You're just tuning in. The Babylon Bee, which is a parody website, has had their Twitter account locked for tweeting that Rachel Levine, who's a transgender woman, they nominated him for Man of the Year. The Babylon Bee is a joke. The whole website is a joke. And we're now at the point where you can get your Twitter account locked for tweeting a joke. And it's not even a serious politician or a serious news source that gets in trouble for tweeting a joke. These are comedians. This is a satire news website designed to make people laugh, and their Twitter account has been locked for tweeting a joke. Talk about a joke. 800-848-WABC. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah, hi, hi. Interesting topic. I want to say that I gave up being amazed at the thickening thickness of the whole woke system a year ago. What you're talking about, nothing new to me. I personally feel very strongly that everyone that understands the the total lack of freedom of speech that these big tech companies are doing, like like the whole Hunter Biden thing, and fifty fifty people from the um, you know CIA and FBI are swearing that it's all not true, the Hunter thing, and then Biden goes and wins. And so on and so forth. 18 months later, the New York Times wakes up. Okay. Uh, the point I'm saying is everyone should get off Twitter. Twitter. Everyone should get off all these websites. Now, we, we're all being pulled in like a fly with a, in a spider web. Nah, it's okay. They only do this. Ah, if it wasn't a joke, then they'd be allowed to do it. If it wasn't a joke. So what? Why can't I say my opinion? Why can't I say that it's ridiculous that she's being called a woman, uh, a, a, a man or whatever it is? I think I should be able to say it openly, even if it's not a joke. Why give excuses for them? We should all that disagree with it get off it. I, I don't know much about social media. I'm not on the internet for whatever reasons, and all they probably make money from this, right? We should all get off it. Stop giving excuses for them and stop being amazed at the sickness of it. They're they're, they're gone. The whole woke system is so insane. I, I'm living in America. I'm 73 years old. I'm 73 years old. I came here, my parents brought me here from France when I was two years old. I never dreamed in a million years that I'd be going through the total lack of freedom of speech. Well, it, is, it is pretty amazing. Look, I, I, the two things I want to say, just in defense of the 
uh, big tech companies. These are private companies. So nobody is telling the Babylon Bee that they can't print whatever jokes they want. And they, they can't stand on a street corner and shout them out. Nobody's saying that. But what YouTube is saying, well, you, YouTube is a private company. Twitter is a private company. They, Facebook's a private company. They have the right to restrict whomever they want, just as WABC does. Um, WABC doesn't you know, give everyone an obligation to have a talk show. That being said, these this is corporate censorship. This is absolutely corporate censorship. Is it a violation of the First Amendment? Well, no, because the First Amendment gives you a right to protect against government restrictions on speech. Nobody, nobody in the government is restricting what jokes you can make about Rachel Levine. But these big tech companies have become so big and such a crucial component, like a conversation, that I, I don't know how they feel comfortable engaging in this degree of suppression. A week ago, we had our YouTube channel blocked here on this radio station because I had Roger Stone on and he said some crazy things, apparently. And I just think this is so in- incredibly nuts. You wonder what's next. I mean, first it's Trump. Then it's WABC. Then it's the Babylon Bee. Are, are we all in a position where we're just going to be afraid to say or do anything that's controversial, that's untrue, that's a satire, that challenges whatever the uh, you know politically correct orthodoxy du jour is? How soon... Until the things that Aaron Mate and Glenn Greenwald have been tweeting about Russia get you kicked off social media. 800-848-922. And by the way, you know, I, we chronicled this a year ago, more than a year ago, a year and a half ago. If you would have tweeted the story about Hunter Biden from the New York Post, even if you were the New York Post, that would have gotten your account suspended. Now that we know that story's true... Does Twitter have to apologize to the people that may, that got their account suspended, including the editor of the New York Post? You, you see how stupid this system is? Now, again, where do you draw the line? Should you be able to live stream on Facebook uh, a murder? Should you be able to live stream someone being raped? Should you be able to live stream someone killing themselves? Of course not. Anything that's criminal... Um, you, I, I would say you, uh, Twitter and Facebook are absolutely in the right not having on there. Anything that's overtly obscene, hardcore pornography, okay. But we're now censoring not only things that they say are inaccurate, we're censoring jokes. That is a dangerous place to be. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk to Ray McGovern in just a minute. Uh, Howard is calling from Babylon, the home of the Babylon Bee. Hello, Howard. Hi, Frank. How are you? Well, you know, I'd like to think I'm doing pretty well. That's good. What would you say to breaking up some of these larger companies into smaller ones? Well, I, I, I think you have to take each one on a case-by-case basis. I think a company like Meta, formerly Facebook, uh, and I think the the new uh, head of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Khan, 
uh, who this was actually one of the Biden picks that I really thought was a strong one. Um, they are bringing about an antitrust suit against Facebook. Uh, a company like Meta should absolutely be broken up. If you look at uh-huh. their whole business strategy, it's the definition of a monopoly. It's a buy and bury business strategies. They buy emerging technologies and then and then kill them off. And the only reason, um, and we now know based on their own uh, admissions, we now know that the only reason they're branching out more into virtual reality is because they were uh, prohibited from from their monopolistic platforms in in everything else they were doing. But if you were to break Facebook up into its component parts, spin off WhatsApp, spin off Instagram, have Facebook or Meta be its own thing, I think that would be a positive first step. I'd have to look at each one on a case-by-case basis. I'm not an expert in antitrust law. I'm not an expert in monopolies. But uh, the fact that they have this sort of stranglehold on the free the flow of information, I think, is just incredibly dangerous. I agree with you, Frank, and I thank you very much for your opinion. Thank you, Howard. I've been trying to get Matt Stoller, who is the best writer on the subject of antitrust, on to talk about what the big uh, tech companies are doing and which ones may need to be broken up, like Meta, for instance. And he he can't handle the hours. So, you know, tough. Somebody that can handle the hours is Ray McGovern. Uh, we're going to talk with him in just a minute. He is a longtime activist uh, with, uh, with, you know, on foreign policy issues, on intelligence agency issues, and somebody who was a 30-year veteran of the CIA, a decorated veteran. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Radio 77 WABC. Frank Marano, going rock and robin will be the only one who is allowed to continue tweet tweet tweeting so jackson five uh rock and robin someone who i'm amazed has not yet been banned from twitter is ray mcgovern uh ray mcgovern has led an incredible career and an incredible retirement he's a former cia officer uh, he was a CIA analyst from 1963 to 1990, and in the 1980s, he chaired the National Intelligence Estimates and prepared the president's daily brief. You know the brief the president gets all about what's happening in the intelligence community and what the intelligence assessments are of this situation, that assessment. He was the one that prepared that uh, back in 19 in the 1980s. He kind enough to join me right now. Uh, good morning, Ray. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I know it's a late night. Hi, Frank. Uh, it's good to be on with you. I, I, I noticed that you're from Brooklyn. I'm from the Bronx. Uh, 
My wife's from Brooklyn, and she married up, as we used to say <laughs> in the Bronx. Well, look, I, I, just to correct the record, Ray, uh, I am a proud Staten Islander, and uh, my parents are from Brooklyn, so I, uh, I consider yeah. myself a, a relative of uh, almost one generation removed, uh, two generations removed from Italy, one generation removed from Brooklyn. Uh, so, be it. Uh, Ray, so before before I get your analysis of the Russia, Ukraine situation, um, let me get this out of the way, because as I was promoting your appearance, I was deluged with this. And I'm sure I'm going to take calls for the next hour about this. You have a master's in Russian studies from a very prestigious school. I think it's Fordham. And uh, you have taken a view Uh, regarding Russian affairs in the media over the last few years, including appearing on media platforms like RT, which a lot of folks refuse to appear on, people are going to claim that you have been and continue to be a Russian mouthpiece or a Putin mouthpiece. How do you respond to that? Are you a mouthpiece for Putin? (laughs) No, I'm not a mouthpiece for Putin. Uh, There are certain things that Americans haven't been exposed to, and they happen to be real. They happen to be flat fact, as we used to say in the newspaper business. And uh, when when those things that I expose turn out to coincide uh, simply with something that the Russians say, then uh, the automatic presumption, because people are so conditioned to believe this, is that uh, I'm in Putin's pocket or something like that. I assure you. Everything I say, Frank, uh, is supported by evidence. The only problem is just like, well, what you were talking about before, uh, a lot of the stuff like Contra uh, uh, Biden's laptop, for God's sake, that's suppressed. Now, you were quite right before in saying that was outrageous. I mean, that had an effect. If you want to talk about affecting an election or fixing an election, well, man, keeping that information suspect, saying, as a matter of fact, that it was a Russian operation. Right. Russian disinformation campaign, I think, was the word that was used to discredit it. So you're, you're, you're very capable and very willing to be critical of Putin when needed. Well, yes, and, and partly that's because I don't depend on uh, the media for a living. And I've always uh, actually been trained to, uh, to to speak truth to power. Uh, my Irish grandmother used to say, Raymond, uh, tell it like it is and don't give a damn what anyone says about you. So <laughs> I try to, try to keep that philosophy so in mind. let's discuss what's been happening in Russia and Ukraine for the last month. The conventional wisdom is, the conventional media narrative is, even people that were opposed to things like NATO expansion, the conventional wisdom is Russia and Putin have been the aggressor here and have invaded a sovereign country uh, that was probably not a threat to them and are waging a, a, a particularly brutal war, which includes the targeting of civilians. Do you agree with that conventional narrative? And if not, what aspects of it do you disagree with? Well, again, you you talk about various aspects of it. I agree with some aspects. I think it's terrible. I think it's beyond the pale to invade another country. The question is why he did it. 
and whether it was, as is automatic for the mainstream media to say, whether it was, quote, unprovoked, end quote. Now, Ukraine does not in itself pose any threat to Russia, but joining NATO uh, with, uh, with missile bases right on the periphery of the western border of Russia, that does. That does pose a strategic threat to Russia by anybody's analysis, and that's what Putin had tried to prevent. NATO expansion, he was unable to prevent. But you know what the big difference is now, Frank? Uh, Putin's got a big brother. He's got a big brother who is ruling 1.4 billion people in China. He, too, has been threatened by even NATO expansion. Now, when you talk about NATO, that's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And they started picking a fight with China about a year ago. So you have two countries, very powerful countries, China especially, and Russia, being uh, being sort of harassed on their frontiers uh, by what they consider to be real threats, strategic threats from the United States and eventually in China uh, by NATO. And so the, they decided to band together, and this was unprecedented. When I, when I was in analysis uh, in, at the CIA, my first portfolio was Sino-Soviet relations, and the story then was that they hated each other. They were shooting at each other across the border. They were claiming each other's land. We thought, and get this, Frank, we thought they would hate each other forever. That just shows nothing is forever. So, Under the common threat that they see from the West, and specifically from the U.S., they banded together, and now it's two against one. So can, uh, just I've spoken about this with George Beebe and uh, the issue of NATO expansion, so I don't want to spend too much time on on this aspect of it, but... I had General Clark, General Wesley Clark on this show. He was obviously Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. He said it's ridiculous for Russia or any country to be fearful of a NATO attack. Um, what do you say to that? I mean, we we always like to view ourselves in America as the good guys. We would never attack another country. And for Putin to claim that he's fearful of an attack because of Ukraine potentially joining NATO, it's just, um, it, you know, it's just posturing on his point, on his part, and it's using this as a convenient excuse to do what he wanted to do anyway. What do you say to that, that um, p- people claim that NATO doesn't, is not in the business of invading other countries? Well, I would cite Yugoslavia in the late 1900s. I mean, late 19, uh, well, 1999, uh, I would cite Afghanistan for 20, count them, 20 years. What's the North Atlantic Treaty Organization doing in Afghanistan, I would ask you? Look at the map. They don't belong there. And it was a long, drawn-out, feckless war. So the notion that NATO doesn't threat anyone, well, there, there are two examples I could adduce more. The real question is, are the Russians trying to take over Europe? You know, the, the, the Russia fell apart, it fell apart, and uh, sort of disintegrated. They were on their back when NATO started to expand. Uh, there was no threat from Russia, 
And what Russia is doing now is reprehensible, but it's a reaction to the, the movement of NATO toward their borders and the emplacement of missile sites within within range of Russia's intermediate, uh, well, intercontinental ballistic missile, ICBM sites. You see, uh, what we have now, what the U.S. or, yeah, what the U.S. has now in uh, Romania and Poland, hard up against Russia's border, are what we call anti-ballistic missile sites. Now, when the Russians said, well, we know you left that treaty, you junked that treaty that was the cornerstone of stability for 30 years, 72 to 2002, why are you now building ABM sites on our border? And we say, oh, uh, because of the threat from Iran. <laughs> now, you couldn't believe that because it wasn't true. Then we had this treaty that prohibited Iran from doing anything like that for 10 years. And those anti-ballistic missile sites kept going in. Now, why do I stress that? Because those sites can be changed overnight by putting in a new CD or a DVD a new program, making them into offensive missiles, offensive missiles that can fly uh, at Mach 8 and endanger part of Russia's strategic uh, missile force. That's a real threat to, the, to, to Russia. And that's something that Putin has been pointing out for the last seven, seven years. And NATO says, well, it's mind your own business. We can do what we want. In other words, um, we are or we have threatened Russia in a strategic way, and Putin has been not able to challenge us. Wesley Clark, you mentioned him, okay? Wesley Clark went to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. His name was Paul Wolfowitz. After that, ter that terrific war that we won against Iraq in 1991, and he said, Paul, what's the main, what's the main lesson you learned from that war? And Paul said without hesitating, we can do these things, and the Russians can't stop us. Now, yeah. 91, okay, Wolfowitz, pretty smart guy, and he said, you know, Wes, uh, there will come a time when the Russians can stop it, stop us, so we have to garner all, all our power now and expand as far as we can. So that was the plan, 91, then the expansion of NATO, Putin powerless to stop it, and all of a sudden, Putin gets this great big friend, and they describe their strategic relationship as exceeding in closeness and effectiveness a traditional alliance. Now, I thought that when Putin invaded Ukraine, which, again, I, I despise the fact that that happened, I thought that the president of China would be upset because China's whole policy is based on non-interference, non-interference in the affairs of other countries. Guess what? He blinked and he said, oh, well, and he supported, supported Russia in the UN and elsewhere. He's criticized the sanctions and he said, look, uh, you know, uh, you want to pay attention to Russia's core interests, just as we demand that you pay attention to our core interests and stop flirting around with independence for Taiwan. So you have a virtual alliance now between Russia and China. Uh, the triangular thing doesn't work for us anymore because I don't know if your listeners remember what an isosceles triangle is. Mm. 
But it's two long sides, right? And then one short end. And that's what we have now, Frank. We're on the short end of that triangle. And that changes the whole strategic calculus in the world at large. There's a bipolar world now, NATO and the U.S. against Russia, China, parts of India, even Pakistan, Brazil. Most of the people in the world have not gone along with what the U.S. has done now in reaction to what, what Russia's done in reaction to what the U.S. did in encroaching on Russia's space. Last thing I'll say is when the Russians came into our space, they tried to put missiles in Cuba in 1962. I was just going on active duty in 1962. I know what that was like because there were no <laughs> there were no weapons at Fort Benning where I, where I entered onto active duty. Why? Because they were all at Key West. We were ready mm-hmm. to go into Cuba, and luckily Kennedy was was uh, more, you know, he was smart enough to get us out of there. Uh, with- now, I don't know about Biden. I think his instincts are good, but I don't think he's his own man. I think he may be pressured into doing something really dumb. Let's hope he doesn't. Well, John, with Ray McGovern, a 30-year CIA veteran uh, turned political activist, one of the narratives that seems to have taken shape, especially over the course of the last month or so, is that uh, Putin is this horrible authoritarian dictator, and he's picking on a country like Ukraine, which is a democratic, Western, freedom-loving country, And yesterday, I pointed out when I filled in on the Bernie and Sid show, Zelensky has banned something like 11 centrist and left-wing parties because they're too close to Russia. He's also shut down a whole bunch of media outlets within Ukraine uh, so that they could have one unified media message. Are those the kind of things that happen in a democracy? (laughs) Not at all. What people don't know is that the most recent round of tension started when we, that is the United States and Britain and some Western countries, overthrew the duly elected government of Ukraine. The date was February 22, 2014. And that coup was advertised 18 days in advance on YouTube. Let me explain, because most people don't know this. Uh, Our Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, her name was Victoria Nuland. Now she's she's even moved up to number three at the State State Department. She and our ambassador in, in Kiev were plotting this coup, and they were conversing en clair, that is, you know, an unencrypted telephone conversation. It was intercepted. And somebody put it on YouTube on the 4th of February, 2014. It showed not only the plotting of the coup, not only the people that they were picking to run the government, including the prime minister, but also the fact that, as Newland puts it, uh, I talked to Jake Sullivan, of course, uh, uh, Vice President Biden's uh, national security advisor. I talked to Jake, and he assures me that uh, Biden's good to come in and and stick this thing together, uh, an international personality, to glue it together, and we'll all work. So, okay, you're Putin, right? (laughs) And you're in Sochi at the the Winter Olympics. 
And you see this on, on YouTube, and you say, oh, holy Moses, I'm glad that somebody intercepted that conversation because that crew was blown. I mean, that's, that, poor, that poor guy, uh, uh, whatever his name was, was not going to be uh, prime minister anymore. Yatsenyuk was his name, Yats, okay? So what happens? Well, I saw it the same thing. But 18 days later, mm. the coup was, was arranged. It concluded. And not only that, but the people who entered the government, a couple of key people were real Nazis, like neo-Nazis, like the tradition of Stepan Bandera, who cooperated with Hitler during World War II. You, you want to put the Russians, uh, at a, you, you want to get the Russian back up? Well, the Russians lost 26 million to the Nazis. 26 million to the Nazis in World War II. By comparison, the United States force lost 400,000 all soldiers, 26,000 all Soviets, okay? So they have this thing about the Nazis, right? Well, now, whenever <laughs> you bring thing. up the Nazi comparison, because it is interesting, uh, uh, Zelensky chose not to ban any of the ultra-right-wing Nazi <laughs> parties. He just banned the centrist and left-wing pro-Russia parties. Whenever you bring up any sort of Nazi connection to Zelensky and the current Ukrainian government, people point out, maybe rightly so, that Zelensky is Jewish. How can he be um, in league with the Nazis, especially when he's kind of publicly shaming Israel for not doing more to help them? What do you say to that argument, that Zelensky can't be in league with Nazis because he's Jewish? Yeah, well, that's a very convenient uh, sounding argument. But the reality is that when Zelensky was elected president and the uh, hostilities uh, in the area against those uh, Russian-speaking provinces of Donetsk and Lugansk, when they started to heat up again, he went there and he talked to the Nazi battalion called the Azov Battalion. Now, don't quibble about that. They, they, they fly swastikas, for right. God's sake. And they sing Nazi hymns, all right? So he said, "Look, I don't want I don't want you to, to stir up trouble there and kill kill even more Russians. And fourteen thousand have been killed, primarily Russians. So I want you to stop it." And they looked at him, they thumbed their nose at him, and said, "What are you kidding me? Get out of here!" And Zelensky said, "Oh, wait a second! I'm the president. I'm telling you not to do this." And they laughed them to scorn, and they continued to do it. Now, again, I don't justify invading another country, but when your own people, you know, let's say uh, your Italian people, your Irish people uh, in diaspora, if they're being if they're being treated very cruelly, some of them being killed by artillery fire every day. Yeah, you could feel strongly about trying to stop that. Well, we we did see that to some extent with a a lot of Americans that were being persecuted in the eyes of some in Texas by the Mexican government. And even though Texas wasn't part of the United States at that time, we did uh, we did uh, play a role in intervening. Um, you, I want to ask you about this column you wrote this week. It's available on antiwar dot com and a bunch of other places in which you say Chuck Todd is a um, is a chemical agent. Now, uh, Chuck Todd interviewed the head of NATO on Sunday. Here, If people didn't hear that interview or see it, here's a, a snippet of it. How long can NATO stand by and watch Russia 
target civilians without finding a way to help more. NATO allies are stepping up their support to Ukraine, partly by delivering uh, military support, humanitarian support, and uh, billions of billions of financial support to Ukraine. And then, of course, we also impose unprecedented sanctions on Russia to ensure that they are paying a high price for this uh, totally unjustified, uh, senseless war against an independent sovereign nation, uh, Ukraine. And now uh, it's clear what side Chuck Todd is taking on the no-fly zone issue. You've written this column saying Chuck Todd is a chemical agent. What do you mean? He might be biased, but how can you call him a chemical agent? (laughs) There was a play on words. Uh, He has a record, Frank. Um, In this case, uh, let's say that was on on Sunday, so two days ago Mm. now. Uh, he raises out of the blue with the head of NATO, Stoltenberg. He says, uh, you know, this no-fly zone that uh, Biden is resisting, uh, you know, if there's a chemical attack, don't you think that would uh, change the calculus? And Stoltenberg doesn't know how to answer that. And then he says again, look, uh, Russian, Russian chemical attack. Don't you think that that should change things? Don't you think that would change the the equation here and and, and permit a a no-fly zone? Well, you know, that's what what a lot of these people are trying to get Biden to do. Why Chuck Todd? Why do I pick on him? Why do I say he might be a a precursor? Because exactly, well, I don't know. It was in uh, 20, let's see. Uh, 2012, okay, 2012, uh, he gets up at a press conference and he says to Mr. Obama, who has just said he's not going to intervene overtly with U.S. troops in Syria, Chuck Todd says with a canned question, is there nothing that would change your calculus on that, Mr. President, and nothing that the Syrians might do that would change your, your view about overt involvement. And Biden, like, spoke, wrote. He said, look, uh, yeah, there is something I forgot to tell you. Uh, If the Syrians used chemical weapons or even moved chemical weapons around, well, that would change my calculus. That would change the equation. That was August 20th, 2012. On August 21st, 2013, there was a false flag attack on the suburb of Damascus, blamed on the Syrian president, president Bashar al-Assad, but really the work of uh, of moderate rebels, as we used to call them, paid and armed by us. We can prove it. We can prove it, including with the principles of physics, and that almost mousetrapped Obama into starting, into mm. firing uh, Tomahawk missiles into Syria. He resisted that, and ironically, it was Putin that bailed them out by persuading the Syrians uh, to destroy all their chemical weapons. I so, remember. Yeah, yeah, it's a real, you know, so there's a president, the same guy, right? Yeah, so, it, it, that is interesting. Before the 2012 to, here's 2022, that was it. Ten years ago, no, right. exactly same, the same thing. Same act so, over ten years. Before we run yeah. out of time here, we're talking with Ray McGovern, uh, former CIA officer turned political activist. Uh, you could check out his website, by the way, at raymcgovern.com, M-C-G-O-V-E-R-N.com. 
What do you think the United States should do next, Ray? If you had your druthers, if you were still in the business of advising presidents or at least providing intelligence estimates to presidents, what would you tell President Biden he should be doing now? He should get a ceasefire immediately. People are being killed. It's awful. And more people are going to be killed if it doesn't stop. The U.S. has the power to do that. Now, what are we doing instead? We're making Zelensky into be some sort of a hero, a Winston Churchill. Right. Ma- ma- I've, I've referred to him as Mandela meets Churchill. You know. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, you know, I can tell you from my own experience, I'm a pretty old guy, right? So I know about Hungary. When there was a revolution, they threw the Soviets out uh, in 1956, but like for two days, then the tanks came in. What did Radio Free Europe, which we ran at the time, what did they encourage the Hungarians to do? Fight them, fight them, run down before the tanks, make sure you fight them. And thousands and thousands of people more were killed. Now, from that, we learned the lesson. Look, when the Soviet tanks are coming in in those days, you know, don't get more people killed than necessary. And in 1968, I was sent out to Munich. Why? because it looked like the Russians were going to go into Czechoslovakia. There was a major revolution there. Everybody was euphoric about this fellow Dubček. He was facing down the Soviets. Uh, Some of my friends and I thought, including the director of Radio Free Europe, thought that the Russians were inevitably coming in. And this time, we shouldn't do a Hungary. We should not encourage the Czechs and the Slovaks to lie down before Russian tanks. And that was the the course we chose. We saved thousands of lives by being reasonable. And lo and behold, what, 68, now you have 1990, the Czech Republic was born. So liberty delayed, but also a lot of slaying, a lot of death and a lot of destruction was was avoided. That is one one of the reasons I'm so appreciative of a statesman like the Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett working so hard to uh, try and broker an end to this uh, senseless fighting uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Before we run out of time, uh, you know, I had Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson on this program last week. I'm still fielding uh, emails, phone calls and Facebook messages of people calling him anti-Israel and an anti-Semite rather than respond to his analysis of the uh, Russia-Ukraine situation. That label of anti-Israel has been pinned on you, I think, at least since the Iraq war. Uh, do you want to preemptively respond to anybody that wants to call you either anti-Israel or an anti-Semite? Well, actually, all I would do is point out that uh, when two academics, a fellow named Mearsheimer and a fellow named Walt, uh, wrote a book about the Israel lobby and tried to show how much power that lobby exerts in this country. Um, I read the book and I I said, well, yeah, that's not news to me. That's courageous of what they did, but they missed. They missed the the most vivid proof of, uh, of how powerful the Israel lobby is. And what they missed and what they didn't have the courage to include was the incident in June of 1967 when the USS Liberty was in international waters and was deliberately attacked by Israel with 32 uh, Navy sailors and Marines killed 
160 wounded, and the whole thing covered up. So I said to uh, I said to Mearsheimer, I said, why did you include that? If you're trying to prove that the Israelis get away with murder, he'll hear it was in flesh. And he said, well, you know, it was, that was pretty delicate. You know, I care about sailors being killed, and especially deliberately killed. That was the case here. And I know some of those veterans from the USS Liberty, and they still had not been given a due process and due cause and, and uh, reimbursement. Ray, and, and, I, I have no. to break. I have to break. Uh, hopefully you'll come back. I didn't mean to cut your answer short there on such a complicated foreign policy issue, but I appreciate you joining me on the radio. You're most welcome. Now, Ray McGovern, comment as you see fit. 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. WABC. The great Elvis Presley. I'm sure some of you are trying to get back home somehow if you're working late or if you're working early, uh, whatever the case may be. So if you've ever seen me, a a picture of me, and you can actually see me right now at uh, WABCradio.tv, we do a, a live video stream of this show. There is a, um, uh, so I have curly hair, very curly hair. It's almost more like um, what traditionally a black man's hair would be like. It's super curly. It's thick. It just grows up. It does not grow. It does not grow down. I couldn't grow long hair if I wanted to. It just grows up. So when, because my hair is so curly, I suffer from a condition called uh, basically the 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 vernacular non-technical term is razor bumps um which is also called pseudo folliculitis barbae okay razor bumps it's a common skin condition that occurs as a result of shaving so when i shave i basically my face breaks into hives it almost looks like i have chickenpox and so I have to use a special razor called a bump fighter. And I just tried to go online to order some. It looks like all the disposables are out. And the only thing they have available is a straight edge razor. Now, I've never really used a straight edge razor. I've gone for a straight edge shave in a barbershop, but I've never used a straight edge razor myself. I'm curious if anyone out there has tried this. How difficult is that? 800-848-9222 or email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Have your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 DC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
tomorrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. So, um, I, I, a bunch of people are holding and want to comment on what we're talking about, and I will get to you. But I came across such an interesting question yesterday. I, I just have see, this is why I like Twitter, is you could see what uh, other people are following, the different activity that they're engaged in. And uh, you, you know, you, you can learn all sorts of different things that you wouldn't have expected. And I don't know that this is present on any of the other social media platforms. So I came across this tweet from a fella named Eric Michael Garcia. I don't really know much about Eric Michael Garcia. Apparently he's a he's a reporter. He's a columnist for MN, MSNBC, uh, author of the book We're Not Broken. Don't know anything about him, really. He could be the best columnist in the world or the worst. But he had a tweet which I thought was so interesting, and I retweeted it. You could see it on my Twitter, at Frank Morano. And he tweeted the following. What is a fact that sounds like a, and the word he used was blank post. He used a a curse word that begins with S, a blank post but is 100% real. So basically what he was saying was, what is a fact, 100% real, verified, that sounds like it's fake? And then he gave a couple of examples, and I thought it would be fun to see what else we could come up with, because this is one of my favorite things, is to tell people facts that that sound fake. Here are a couple of the ones that he gave. I'll read you a couple of the ones that other people gave. But I'd love to hear yours, if you have any. A fact that sounds fake. 800-848-9222. Here's one that other people came up with, not me. Johnny, I mean, look, all of these are from other people, including mine, because they're facts. I didn't invent the fact. Johnny Cash was the first, was the first, if not one of the first, Americans to know that Joseph Stalin had died. Now, that is amazing. That sounds like nonsense. Here's another one. Jeb Bush and Bill Belichick went to high school at Phillips Academy in Andover at the same time. Um, there are There's a bunch of good ones like this. And uh, I, I, so if you have, if you have one of these, give me a call 800-848-9222. I'll give you a few others that I came across. Um, For instance, we, one of the things that we, that the United States did, I don't know if you're aware of this. If I was aware of it, I had forgotten about it. But one of the things that the United States did was the CIA actually conducted a sham vaccination program in Pakistan to try to find Osama bin Laden to collect DNA from people in the neighborhood where he was hiding. And now it's resulted in a bunch of polio cases and the murder of some legitimate vaccine workers. Did you know that? That's documented. You could find that out online. Now, that is a true fact that sounds like a, a weird Internet conspiracy theory. What else do you have? 800-848-9222. Uh, I know a bunch of people have been holding. So if you want to comment on something other than a fact 
you can uh, you can do so as well. Dan is in Ohio. Hello, Dan. Frank, you hit a grand slam. You're the best. I listen to Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, and Glenn Beck. That interview you had with that gentleman was right on. I'm 85 with the Jewish DNA, and I lived through that. I was one of the soldiers that was going to be the first ones to invade Cuba. I know about Serbia. Everything he said is true. I lived it. And let, let me say one other thing. George George Soros, he was raised in Budapest, Hungary. He belonged to the Nazi Party, and he was Jewish like I. And if he ever went to back to Hungary, they'd lock him up. But him and Zelensky had very close ties. And there's things that went on there that were corrupt. Now, they're both tied to the oil czars in the world, and the people can look that up and find out who they are. And they're the ones benefiting from this war. Well, They're making trillions because oil prices have gone up. Dan, thank you for the compliment and for calling and for your service. Um, George Soros is not a Nazi. Uh, look, I'm not going to defend George Soros. I think what he's doing in terms of funding a lot of these, um, you know, the DA candidates around the country is a real shame. George Soros is not a Nazi. This was a lie that was invented in the in the 1990s by Lyndon LaRouche. Uh, this was first claimed, I think, back in December of 93. I'm looking this up by Lyndon LaRouche's newspaper, the Executive Intelligence Review. It falsely claimed that Soros was a Nazi collaborator. Um, now, this has been disproven. Uh, George Soros. It, it, was a Holocaust survivor. He was not a Nazi collaborator. I, again, I'm not. In a, I don't want to be in a position to defend George Soros, but George Soros was not a Nazi. Uh, it doesn't mean he's a good person or doing the right thing politically. He was not a Nazi collaborator. Joe is on Staten Island. Hello, Joe. All right, Joe. Eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. Janet is in Manhattan. Hello, Janet. Yeah. Hi, Frank. I have to agree with that man who just called. That interview you just did was incredible. And, you know, you you show yourself over and over to be an incredible interviewer, not just the way you do the interview, the way you carry it out, which is brilliant, but the people that you interview. And that's what uh, is amazing, because, I mean, you have you. This is a conservative station, by and large. And I think you've announced yourself, described yourself pretty much as a conservative, although you say you're not a Republican or, or anything, but th- that you have Ralph Nader on. Ray McGovern, the only place I have ever heard Ray McGovern before, of course, is on WBAI. And that's the only place where you will ever hear him. And to hear him talk so simply, he broke it down and he was there. You know, as you say, you can't get more informed than someone who was the chief um 
Right, who was preparing uh, the president's yes, in daily intelligence chief, brief. Yes. The intelligence officer for the president of the United States, for George H.W. You can't get any closer to the ground than that. So, And he breaks it down and explains things so brilliantly. So I, I do hope you'll have him on again whenever he's willing to come on. And also I'd like to request another one that you've had on before. I want to hear on this, which is Vladimir Posner. And he also, I heard him on BAI recently, but it was not... Uh, in real time. It was an interview he had done. It was a, a talk he had done about two months ago before the invasion. But again, clear as a bell in his understanding of what's going on. So that's my request. Ray McGovern, as often as you can get him, and also Vladimir Posner. Well, th- I mean, just- thank you, Janet. Thanks for the compliment. Uh, you know, I don't think I've ever called myself a conservative. I did vote for Donald Trump twice. And I think in the current climate, they love to label you as this or that. I don't know what I am. Uh, most of my views, I think, tend to be pretty liberal. Although, if you look at uh, how much uh, the left the, the left has essentially taken over the Democratic Party, I don't know that they would really love me. I, I'm totally against cancel culture or political correctness. I prefer lower taxes to higher taxes. Um, you know, I... Uh, you know, I, I think I'm very tough on illegal immigration, but I'm really tough on illegal immigration because I support the American worker and I want American workers to do better and make more money. And when they're forced to uh, compete for slave wages with, with slave wages overseas through free trade or in this country because of illegal immigration, um, I don't think that's fair. So. I don't know what my ideology is. I, I Some issues I'm very right wing. Other issues I'm very left wing. I don't wake up in the morning and think, what's the right wing view? What's the Democratic view? I want to hear all the views and then make my own decision on the uh, on the merits. But what I really want to hear now is a fact that sounds completely untrue. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. David Krell writes that there's another Las Vegas in New Mexico. That is a fact. In fact, that one was first. And in fact, when my wife and my wife and I went to Las Vegas a year ago today, and she was looking at the weather reports for Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Las Vegas, Nevada. So you can imagine what that did to our packing plans. 800-848-9222. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, Frank. Um, uh, Hitler did escape and uh, died in South America in like the 60s or the 70s. You're saying that's a fact? Yeah, it is. That's a doc. I was going to call you um, and have you included in one of the mysteries or suggest it, um, the mysteries you want to do. The mystery, the mystery, though, is why they're still pushing the story that that, that's the bunker story. Now, but why? Now, I've heard that theory, and I know uh, Jerome. There was a documentary about the better part of ten years ago. I think it was on A and E. I mean, they show videos of him. They talk to the surviving staff of the hotels he stayed in, different places. There was like Kodachrome video of him, and it was like there were no deep fakes back then, you know. And um, it wasn't the the Kennedy assassination file that uh, Trump released. Well, what little he did release, it was in there. I mean, who knows? It could have been, it could have been filed by the same clerk. I don't know, but 
I well, mean, I saw the video. So I will look yeah. into that. I'm going to put that in our unsolved yeah. mystery subject. That is not an undisputed fact. What I said about the um, the CIA and Pakistan and giving people polio, that's a fact. Uh, the, you know, the MK Ultra program, the CIA drugging American citizens, that's a fact. Um, w- we've seen with, uh, you, you know, here's one. Here's a fact that sounds like it's fake. Robert Todd Lincoln was at or near the scene of three presidential assassinations. Now, how wild is that? Robert Todd Lincoln was with his father when his father died. He was then Secretary of War to James Garfield. He was with James Garfield when James Garfield was shot in Union Station. And then he was in Buffalo when William McKinley was shot. After that, he wisely decided to stop accepting presidential invitations. He only did one more for the rest of his life. And it's one of the reasons he never ran for president himself, because he was a popular Republican attorney for many years, Robert Todd Lincoln. That was the only one of Lincoln's sons to survive to adulthood. Ed is in Massachusetts. Ed, give me a fact that sounds fake. Well, I have two of them. Great. Um, Don Larson, who's the only pitcher ever to pitch a perfect game in the World Series. You think that sounds fake? No, no, there's something else. What else happened in his life that same day? Oh, tell me. His wife filed for divorce. Is that true? See, yes. that does sound fake. One. I love that. No, one. it's well. I read it in Baseball Digest okay. years ago. I, I believe it. Okay. Okay. Second one: the day JFK was assassinated, Bob Schieffer, the ex, uh, you know, CBS sure. News anchor. Right. People know him the, from Face the Nation. Yeah, he gave that afternoon. He gave Lee Harvey Oswald's mother a ride into Dallas from her home in suburban Dallas. And that's a fact. That's undisputed. That is a fact. He's talked about it. Yeah. That is wild, Ed. Thank you. You know, that reminds me, uh, just to go back to Lincoln for a second, the only one of Lincoln's sons or children to survive to adulthood was Robert Todd Lincoln. You know, remember, I think he's played by uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the movie Lincoln, uh, which I liked, by the way. It had a couple of historical inaccuracies, but I liked it. But, um, Ed, that's the only one of his sons that lived. That kid in the White House, tag, he didn't live. It's sad. It's very sad. Lincoln's had a lot of tragedy. The only reason Robert Todd Lincoln got to survive to adulthood because his life was saved during a train accident. Do you know who saved him? Edwin Booth, the brother of John Wilkes Booth. Isn't that amazing? That Lincoln's assassin, at least one of them, Lincoln's assassin, his brother saved the only one of Lincoln's sons to live until adulthood. Wow. Give me a a fact that sounds fake. 800-848-WABC. Johnny is in Brooklyn. Hello, Johnny. Hey, Frank. What's going on, man? Uh, Not too much. Not too much. I just want to say big, big fan of the show. Oh, that's nice of you, Johnny. Thank you. Big fan. Listen, I think the fact that most sounds fake is this. Drake is Jewish. What do you think of that? Drake the rapper? Drake the rapper. That's a good one. That, that's a good one. That's a good one, my man. I like it, Johnny. Thank you. Um, here's one that I know for a fact is true, uh, and that Frank Masano has messaged me on Facebook. And if you can't get through on the phones, 
uh, you can message me. We only have eight phone lines, and they're all blowing up. So if you can't get through on the phones, you can message me on Facebook, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. While you're there, like the page. Um, by the way, Philip, don't put up anyone that says don't take because I can't spare a phone line to someone that we're not going to put on on the radio. So Frank Masano writes to me, Tommy Lee Jones was Al Gore's roommate in college. That is true. That's a fact. That does sound fake. 800-848-WABC. If you have a fact that sounds like it's complete nonsense. 800-848-WABC. Here's one that I did not know about that somebody tweeted. Ted Cruz, you know, the senator. Senator Ted Cruz went to Princeton with the Menendez brothers. Menendez brothers, those fellows who killed their parents. Ted Cruz went to Princeton with them. That is, I didn't know that. 800-848-WABC, if you have a true fact that uh, that sounds fake, I would love to hear it. 1-800-848-9222. I'll try and get to you that have been holding on other issues as well. Phil is in Mendham. Hello, Phil. Uh, hi, Frank. Uh, I wanted to respectfully just take issue with uh, your guest's sure. idea that uh, Putin had a justification for going in because there might be missiles on Ukrainian territory, uh, NATO missiles. Um, I, uh, as I recall in 2014, that the only people talking about Ukraine being in NATO was the Ukraine and that the uh, rest of the NATO members were studiously and clearly avoiding and pushing off the subject of any entry into NATO by Ukraine. We talk a lot. And as a matter of fact, they've been accused up until like yesterday of refusing to arm or militarize the Ukraine at all. And and just uh, and uh, Phil, I'll let you make the rest of your point. But just for the future, it is Ukraine, not the Ukraine. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was very terrible. And I heard your correction the other night and I was very impressed. I can't believe I lapsed into that habitual thing. And I apologize. No, it's OK. I mean, people said it that way for, you know, uh, you know, a, a hundred years. So, I mean, it's under, it's a difficult habit to make. There are times when I, I still I call Andrew it. Cuomo Mario Cuomo. You have to break it. So I, I think that basically the, the your guest was repeating what was in effect the. Uh, you know, uh, 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 Russian talking points as far as uh, missiles being uh, on uh, Ukraine territory. Fair enough, Phil. I appreciate you calling in and uh, offering your two cents. 800-848-9222. Give me a fact that sounds like it's totally fake. Paul is in Ohio. Hello, Paul. Yes. um, Jimmy Johnson, the football coach, and Janis Joplin were in the same homeroom in Port Arthur High School in Texas. Is that true? Jimmy Johnson and and Janis Joplin were in the same homeroom? Wow, wow, wow. That's a fact. That is, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, thank you, Paul. I didn't know that one. Here's one. Uh, Curtis Lee would just SMS text message me. He's listening because he needs to determine what he's going to talk about for 12 hours this weekend. Uh, he text messaged me, Governor Al Smith of New York had a small zoo at the governor's mansion in the backyard. That's what Curtis is saying. I'm not verifying that independently, 
That's what Curtis is saying. Outrageous. Al in Manhattan, give me a fact that sounds fake. Good morning. Yes, it's been alleged that Elvis Presley had four four brothers. Well, we're not talking allegations here, though. We're talking about an undisputed fact. Right. Well, the one tw- of them was a twin. Yeah, the twin was was Aaron, I believe. Um, no, he Elvis du- was Aaron. Well, no, I I think the twin was also named Aaron. Garen. Oh, Garen. And, and uh, what's not true is that his name was originally Elvis Pretzel. <laughs> yeah, Jesse right, Garen Presley. You. You're right. Thank you. I'm not sure that's in keeping with the you know with the exercise here. Russ in White Plains, give me a fact that sounds fake. Carl Rove was in law school with Ted Bundy at the same time. University of Utah Law School, 1977. Carl Rove was in law school with Ted Bundy? Correct. I don't know if they sat next to each other, but they were in University of Utah Law School at the same time. And it's a small law school. So, Huh. I, yeah, has, he ever, has he ever been asked about that? Have I ever been asked about it? No, not you. Has Carl Rove? Ever been I asked think about so. It? I think so, because that's where I heard it. But I, I was out there at the same time, so I, I knew when they were both at the law school, too. So, Well, that's was, wild. That's a good one. Yeah. 800-848-9222. Give me a fact that sounds fake. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Lou is in Queens. Hello, Lou. Hey, how are you, Frank? Lou, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on hold because your phone line's all screwed up here. Uh, so get to a better area, and then we'll we'll come back to you. Okay? Uh, thank you, Rachel in Queens. My wife's name is Rachel. Hopefully, you're as patient as she is, Rachel. Rachel. All right, we lost Rachel. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Let me say hello to. We'll try again with Lou in Queens. Hello there, Lou. Yeah, hi. I wanted to bring up a fact that you won't believe. The United States Army in the middle of 2021 decided to give up its uh, asymmetric warfare group. Isn't this incredible, considering that the Ukrainians are actually fighting an asymmetric war? All right, Lou, I'm I'm going to let you go because I, I can't. It's too difficult to understand what you're saying there are people who've called in this show from war zones literally that are easier to understand than than some of the people calling in uh on mobile phones here in america i don't blame the people i blame the mobile phone and the mobile phone provider you know that guy didn't have verizon john is in whitestone give me a fact that sounds fake Inside the actor's studio, Mr. James Lipton was actually a pimp in the 1950s in France. Now, is that confirmed? It, because that... Yeah, yeah, he actually came out and said that. It's, it's confirmed. It was in a magazine article that he was in. Okay, I did look this up. You are correct. He did indeed um, work as a pimp in France. That is wild. Good one, no, John. See, no. see, isn't this fun? Learning all these things? Who would have thought this? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah, I'm. Hi, why are you, Frankie? Yeah, we're talking about Elvis Presley, but you know he was a, he, his mom was Jewish, and he found out about it when he went to the army, and then she sent him a letter three weeks she passed on. She told him that his heritage, and he, you know they cut the, they don't cut the hair after three years old till three, and um, she gave him his history and she gave him the Star of David. He used to wear the Star of David. But Colonel Parker didn't want to advertise it that he's a Jewish kid. So Elvis was, in fact, Jewish then? 
he was in fact Jewish, and on his stone, his his mother said, "Put the Star of David on his gravestone." The, you know, when she, she was buried in Memphis, and till today, the the, the JCC does the Kaddish for him once he, in the summer when See, he that's you know, a, during that, his, that's a good one. I, I think a lot of people didn't realize. And Elvis, another thing, yeah, um, the rabbis came to to, to visit him. Um, in the 70s, you know, the Hebrew Academy of uh, Memphis, and he brought down a check for $170,000. I saw the copy of it, and they said, Elvis, I think you put down 170000 instead of, should, they thought it was 170 bucks. He said, don't, don't, what I put down, I know what I put down. He, he, you know, he said, this is good. He was a big giver. He was a big charity giver. That's for, that's for he, sure. Yeah, yeah, he was uh, he was a uh, amazing human being. He loved every everyone. Uh, no, that he, that is, was... yeah, that's for sure. Every conversation that I've had with somebody that's been in Elvis's company has said the same thing. Great call, Simon. Thank you. You know, it's funny. I, Curtis is now trying to be a full participant in the show, and he's trying to send in more facts. But the problem is, I have to fact check Curtis. So he he just sent in one, which is not really true. It's sort of true. That, that's the danger with Curtis. Is everything he says is sort of true, but not exactly. It's, it's like those Hertz commercials. There's Hertz and there's not exactly. There's Curtis and there's not exactly. So he sent in this text message that General Santa Ana of the Alamo fled to Staten Island and invented the chiclets. Now, that's not exactly true. And I think Curtis is probably misremembering a fact that I told him. Santa Ana, the Mexican general and the emperor, he was deposed. Where did he go? He did move to Staten Island. That's true. It's also true that he would chew on this rubbery substance from Mexico called chicle, which was all the rage in Mexico. But it wasn't. he didn't invent anything. His neighbor, Thomas Adams, he was an inventor. He'd seized Santa Ana chewing on this chickle. He had some rubber to it and a whole bunch of sugar. And that becomes chiclets, the first chewing gum. That's the fact that's true, is that it was Santa Ana's neighbor, not in Mexico, but in Staten Island, Thomas Adams, that invented chewing gum. We'll do a few more in uh, just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. You can't help but think of uh, Pulp Fiction whenever you see, we hear this song, am I right? Uh, we're going to go through your best and worst email in just a minute. If you want to try and squeeze in a witty email uh, under the gun, we're, we're going to go through that shortly. A, uh, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Very briefly, oh, I got one via email here, one of these facts, a fact that sounds fake. 
James writes, the actors who played the parents on Family Ties, Meredith Baxter and Michael Gross, were born on the same day. I did not know that. I did not know that. Hey, you remember the other day when I was telling you about metaverse real estate and how all these real estate speculators are buying, um, you know, the, you know, all the, these plots of land in the metaverse? Well, yesterday, a friend of mine reached out to me, and he is launching a metaverse Staten Island. And it's going to be Staten Island digitally created in a virtual world. And he asked me, do you want to be the first person to buy your house in the metaverse? Now, look, I'm Staten Island's favorite son. What do you think I'm going to say to that? Answer, absolutely. So I will be in the next week or two, hopefully, a couple of weeks at most, buying my home in the metaverse, I will be the first property owner in the meta Staten Island. I decided he's going to give me an opportunity to buy all my friends' houses as well. So I'm going to buy all their houses. I'm not going to do anything with it. I don't expect to spend much time in the metaverse, but who knows? By the time uh, my son is, uh, I don't know, 20, who knows? Maybe by that time, every, all business will be transacted in the metaverse, and this will be pretty valuable Metaverse real estate. Who knows? What am I? I lose 20 bucks, 40 bucks. You know, chances are I could probably flip it in two weeks for 100 bucks. So, so we'll see. I'm looking forward to that. I'll tell you more about it as that unfolds. Meantime, I have told you about my wife's war on mugs. She despises the number of mugs we have. If you open our mug drawer in our house, you will see mugs upon mugs upon mugs. And what do we use? We each use one a day, right? So we we have many, many more mugs that we could use. In fact, we could have a whole army of people over, and we'd have a mug for each of them. So, uh, and Ellen, who's very kind to post in the Facebook group, she had sent us a whole bunch of Carmine mugs, you know, with his image on it. So obviously we're not going to get rid of those. So she added one more mug under protest. Then on Saturday, a couple of days ago, we get another package with, you guessed it, more mugs. And they were presidential mugs for presidents that I already have mugs of, Theodore Roosevelt and James Garfield. Now, I did give, this was the last straw. When my wife opened this package and saw that there were more mugs coming to our house, she gave me a look that I picture being the the look that a wife gives a husband when a husband tells her, sorry, honey, I just blew all the mortgage money on a, a football bet. Hell or, no. Uh, or sorry, honey, you know, uh, I've been having an affair for the last six years. And that was the same look. Not at all, please. So I said, don't worry. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. And I arranged to give a couple of these mugs away so that they could find a good home. Uh, Minority leader Joe Borelli had come over for for ping pong, gave him one. Judge Brendan Lantry came over, I gave him one. So I think we're good now. Back to mug, you know, a mug equilibrium. Lo and behold, on Sunday, 
one of the, my chores around the house is I'm responsible for doing the recycling and take the, taking the garbage out. I find in the recycling, in, the, in our garage, not one, not two, not three, not four, but five mugs my wife was attempting to throw away. And I'm fishing these mugs out of the garbage. And I'm thinking, who does she think she's kidding? She knows I go through this recycling. She knows I'm going to get through these mugs. Um, Let's not do this. So I've now, I hid four of them. And then I used one on Saturday. My thinking being if my wife sees, or Sunday, if my wife sees me using one, maybe she won't throw it out. So the one that I used was a mug that was gifted to me by my friend, Assemblyman Michael Cusick, who's retiring from the Assembly this year. He's one of my closest friends, a great guy, a gifted elected official. So yesterday, Monday, I see, now she still hasn't found the ones that I've hidden, but I see she's thrown away the Mike Cusick mug in the regular garbage this time. She must think I'm not going to check the regular garbage. So it's, I fished that out of the garbage, obviously, and saved it yet again. So I don't know how she's going to try and dispose of it next. She may try to drive upstate halfway to Monticello and and throw it out the window somewhere with that dog that uh, Kramer and Newman were trying to get rid of. Everything's fair game. But um, I am not going to let her throw away this Mike Cusick mug. Not only is it a great mug and something of a collector's item now, but... It's something that uh, has a great deal of sentimental value. Billy's on in Long Island City. Hello, Billy. Hey, Frank. Robert De Niro, the most famous Italian actor, is actually three quarters Irish. Is that true? That's a fact. Wow. His gay father, his gay father was half Irish, half Italian, and his mother is a hundred percent Irish. Wow, that is a good one, Billy. That's a good one. Thank you, Chris in Suffolk County. Give me a fact that sounds fake. Roman Polanski. When the uh, Manson murders took place, thought that Bruce Lee killed all those people. He thought that Bruce Lee killed all those people. Yes, because he they he was uh, Bruce Lee gave them lessons. He was friends with them, and they found a pair of glasses on at the crime scene. And Roman Polanski was so freaked out, he had no idea who could have done it. And they thought maybe because he had such I guess skill that he was one of the few people wow. that could have done it. And, well, I guess whatever whatever was going through his mind, I guess he wasn't thinking straight. So when Bruce Lee says to him, I lost my glasses, he thought that he, those were the glasses. Wow. So Roman Polanski brought him down, and when he realized the prescription was different, he realized it wasn't him. Wow, that that's something, Chris. Thank you. You know, I'll tell you one similar story in, in that vein. Curtis Lee, who I mentioned earlier, he was shot June 19th, 1992. When he was shot, and I hope I don't get in trouble for repeating this, when he was shot, do you know one of the people who was called in for questioning? Jay Diamond. Really? The the police called Jay into questioning for Curtis's shooting. Now, obviously, Jay Jay had nothing to do with the shooting, and and the police found that out upon questioning. But that was, that's a true story. Bob is in Queens. What do you have for us, Bob? Yeah, Frank. Hi. I'm not 100% sure on this. Oh, boy. A couple okay. of times, though. Mm-hmm. 
Frank Sinatra's mother and Dean Martin's son both died in separate plane accidents that crashed into the same mountain. Huh. Uh, okay. Well, that one I'm going to have to check out because I didn't. I didn't know that. But I will check that one out. One other thing. Uh, last night I offered two suggestions for unsolved. Yeah. By the way, uh, I just. Mystery. I just. I just looked that up. You're right. Uh, both Dean Martin's son uh, died in a plane crash on the San Gorgonio Mountains in California. Ten years earlier, Sinatra's mother died the exact same way from a wow, plane wow, crash wow. on the same mountain range. Uh, interesting. One other thing. I offered up two suggestions last night for unsolved uh, murders, Lufthansa and the Zodiac Killer. And I have one more. Uh, the mysterious death of Natalie Wood. Yeah, that actually is on my list. I am working on that. I'm trying to get Natalie Wood's sister on this show to talk about her new book because she deals extensively with it. That's a good one, Bob, though. Thank you. Uh, 800-848-9222. You know, it is interesting, um, kind of similar. I don't know what, what about that call made me think of this. But do you know the... First World War, who was ru- fight ruling Britain? King George V. Who was ru- ruling Germany? Kaiser Wilhelm II. Who was ruling Russia? Tsar Nicholas II. So basically you had, you know, all these countries being some of the leading wars, you know, be- being some of the leading countries that were warring. And they were cousins. They were cousins. First cousins. Kaiser Wilhelm II and King George V of Britain were first cousins. And so was Tsar Nicholas II. So think about that. I've had some issues with my cousins over the years, but never in a hundred, never in a million years. Could I imagine starting a world war against a country that my cousin was leading. Wow. Wild. 800-848-9222. Tony is in Florida. Hello, Tony. Hey, Frank. I've got a fact and a question. I'm ready. Okay. The fact is that President Taft, while in the White House, got stuck in the bathtub. That, that, is, that is true. I've heard that one. And the second one, now this has bugged me for 30 or 40 years. Why do people, after all these years of being told to turn off the radio when uh, they call talk radio, they leave them on? Tony, I, I can't understand it for the life of me. Uh, it's it's the most frustrating thing in the world uh, to me and to the listener. It's frustrating for me as a listener. I can't imagine. I, I, I can't understand it at all why someone would leave the radio. Why? Thank you, Tony. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We'll go through the mail uh, straight ahead. This is the other side of midnight. If you want to email me and try and get a letter in, you can do so. Frank Morano at wabcradio.com. Straight ahead. WABC seventy seven WABC stands with Ukraine, supporting the humanitarian efforts taking place in Ukraine. We need your help. Help support the people of Ukraine in their time of need by going to wabcradio.com slash donate. 
100% of the proceeds go directly to the ongoing humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. Go to wabcradio.com slash donate. 77 WABC stands with Ukraine. Injured military service members today need your help. They dedicate their lives to the service of others, and when they return home, they face long delays for their care. Medical care, counseling, and rehabilitation are just a few areas that are in need. By donating to an organization of your choice or to the Bob Woodruff Foundation.org, you can make a big difference in a service member's life. This paid public service announcement is sponsored by the concerned professional staff of Trenton Forging Company. Helping to ensure support our troops is not just a slogan. Whether you're on the other side of midnight with me, or maybe you're on another side of midnight with my friend Curtis Lewa, you have to keep moving. You need to consume food and beverages that are good for your body and your mind. Food was different 60 years ago. It was minimally processed. It was free of pesticides. It was nourishing. And it was healthy for your body. Today, that's not the case. You know I love Life Change Tea. This tea is specifically blended with a powerful herbal proprietary formula that can help give you more energy without caffeine. It tastes great. There's no fillers, no GMOs. It's a mild cleanse and a daily detox that will cleanse you. Their slogan is, the tea that makes you go. You can read the testimonials for yourself at getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com. Use the promo code Frank for free shipping. So go to getthetea.com. That's getthetea.com. Promo code Frank. They have a ton of other great products there too. Use the promo code Frank. You'll enjoy that same free shipping. Getthetea.com. Promo code Frank. Talk Radio 77 WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. The Screaming Blue Messiahs, I Want to Be a Flintstone. Love this song. Love, love, love this song. If you ever want to know what music we're playing, uh, join the Facebook group. I post it every morning. Uh, Just go to Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. 800-848-9222 if you'd like to call in. Prester is in New Jersey. Hello, Prester. Uh, yes, Frank, how are you doing? Well, uh, I think uh, oh, I could really go for a massage, as I said yesterday. <laughs> okay. Okay, uh, thanks very much for the good job you are doing. Oh, by the way, I have a solution for the mag. Oh, for the mugs? Yes. Let's hear it. So, you know, why can't you sell some to me? Well, do you want any of these? Well, because maybe okay, email me. We'll negotiate. We'll negotiate. I, you know, honestly, I don't want to get rid of these mugs. I have um, two mugs from my friend Arthur Idala's law firm, which are great. They're nice and big, which I like. 
I have another mug in the same style from when I was a guest lecturer at Monroe College. I have uh, this Cusick mug. I have a Trump mug. I have two Garfield mugs. I have a Theodore Roosevelt mug. I have a Guardian Angels mug. And then these are the four that my wife was trying to throw away on Sunday. We have two mugs that say Mr. and Mrs. So she was trying to throw away all four of those. Maybe I should take a hint. No, no, those ones you should not get rid of. Those ones you have to keep them. Exactly. That's what I was trying to tell her. So, and then I said, I said to my my brother in law, let me let me give it to you to keep at your house, and when we sleep over your house, we could use them. He wouldn't take them. They have a similar mug glut. But uh, email me, Prester. We'll negotiate on some mugs that I might be willing to sell. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Without further ado, it is time for us to see what you have written. Well, we don't have much in the way of snail mail. I'm guessing nobody made a trip to our P.O. Box this week. If you ever want to send us mail uh, in our P.O. Box, it's P.O. Box 1777, uh, New York, New York, 10163, I think. Attention, Frank Morano. We got one package here. Um, this is no note. It's from some uh, someone RTR in Red Bank. And it's a, a in a priority mail envelope. And I open it up. And it's just two magazines. One is, and and one looks old, which I like. It's kind of cool. One is called Wax Poetics with Heart and Soul, Earth, Wind, and Fire on the cover. The other is Town and Country from June of 2009 with D. Zobel on the cover. The Joy of Giving. What am I supposed to do? This is the special philanthropy issue of town and country. What am I supposed to do with these? I really, I'm not looking for more clutter, especially, and as much as I'm not looking for more clutter, I don't know, I don't think my wife is. Now, I looked to see if there was a note. Oh, Frank, check page 23 of the magazine. No note. So I'm not sure who sent this or why, but I I think I'm going to throw these away. So let me throw them away. Um, All right. Email Christine Trotter writes... Your interview with Mate. Hi, Frank. Your interview with Mr. Mate was terrifically informative. I loved it. I played it for my husband, who speaks fluent Russian. He's American, but loves languages. If you ever have Mr. Mate back, we have a couple of questions, that is, if you think they're worth pursuing. They're all related to the neo-Nazi issue in Ukraine that you raised. As far as we know, Bandera was an ultra-Ukrainian nationalist, who participated with the Nazis during the Holocaust. There are still monuments to him. Nationalist groups proudly carry his portrait in demonstrations, and he was almost declared a national hero of Ukraine. When asked about him, Zelensky said, well, many Ukrainians consider him a hero and did not condemn him. As far as we know, so here are the questions. How many monuments are there to Bandera? How influential are these nationalists in Ukraine? How can people be reassured that their influence is small when there are monuments to him and B, that the government almost made him a national hero? Uh, That's basically it. Like you, we're wondering about this threat that Putin and others keep raising. 
Subject, the Lindbergh baby from Michelle. Frank, my grandparents were immigrants from Switzerland and Germany. The FBI put my grandparents through hell. They were suspects in the kidnapping because their last name was Hartman. And my dad was the same age as the Lindbergh baby and resembled him. They were living in Delaware at the time, but had previously lived in Brooklyn. My poor grandparents were traumatized by this, as you could probably imagine. Well, uh, I I can't imagine. That must have been rough. Uh, This comes to us from Suzanne. Subject, amazing interview. Good afternoon, Frank. Just finished listening to the interview you did with Paul Manafort this morning. Slam dunk, amazing job. Thank you so much for giving him the forum to talk about what happened to him. And while I always think you do great interviews, I really think you topped yourself this time. That's very nice, Suzanne. Thank you. And you know who actually sent me the nicest um, message on Twitter? Someone that I, I don't know personally, Howard Feynman. Howard Feynman, the veteran journalist and columnist, sent me a nice note praising that interview. This is um, someone, Krez writes, OMG, Frank, Ed Koch was the only politician I ever wrote to. Thanking him for his integrity and telling him he'd be the only official I'd go to a memorial for. I got a sweet, brief reply. But he gads, I just listened to your racket report. Um, Ed and Bess Maron. Uh, shockedly, Krez. If you, this is a, a revelation that came out about Ed Koch in the first edition of The Racket Report. If you haven't heard it, go to WABCRadio.com, listen to The Racket Report. I then had to tell this person that wrote to me, just by the way, consider the source, Anthony Ramundi is somebody that's, you know, uh, an admitted mobster, loan shark, and murderer. So I don't know if everything he says has credibility. Uh, Andy writes via Facebook, Hey, great show tonight. Listen on the overnight flight to London. Great guests and solid show. Thank you. Thank you. This comes to us from Geraldine. Subject, turning off your show uh, because of your propensity to downplay the Putin invasion of Ukraine. Bring on guests who will criticize Ukraine and spread doubt regarding the deaths and destruction going on there. I do denounce you and sadly will not be listening to your show anymore. Geraldine Grant, Justice of the Peace, retired from Prince Edward I, Canada. Well, we'll miss you, Geraldine. I appreciate you having formerly listened to this show. We will miss you. Um, let's see what else we have here. Uh, this is from, I don't know if it's signed, uh, from someone, not signed, subject, The WABC's one-sided views on Russia and Ukraine. This person writes, if I'm not mistaken, you might be the only host, Bill O'Reilly might be the other, who are much fairer regarding impartial reporting on the situation. Who else is in the news media, especially on WABC? The Russians sacrificed close to 30 million fighting on the side of the U.S. and the Allies. Today, Russia is practically circled by 30 NATO nations Many nuclearized. Why isn't Russia invited to NATO membership, even Ukraine and other ex-Soviet republics with Russia? Also, the Warsaw Pact was disbanded in 1991, yet NATO has grown dramatically. Well, 
I agree with you on that, that this NATO expansion is tremendous cause for concern. Um, I don't think I think John Katsimatidis, to be honest, has been very fair with his coverage of the Ukraine situation. He's not only had me on and given me a free hand to give my opinion about the crisis every Sunday morning and more. He's actually replayed some of the interviews that I've done on this show, on his show, which because it's, you know, at a, a time that most people are awake for, has a much wider audience. So I, I would add John to the list of hosts that you cite, uh, myself and Bill O'Reilly. And you know what, Curtis? Curtis is not bad on this issue. Uh, he brings a different perspective, especially when he's on with Anthony Weiner. Um, this person writes, Frank, I'm so with you on people calling it the Ukraine. I try to explain to people that it used to be called the country of Ukraine. So you wouldn't say the Ukraine. People are very thick headed, which includes Curtis, who knows better, but still says the Ukraine. Just like you wouldn't say the America, but of course you say the United States. The Ukraine, very annoying. Also, people who say him and I, her and I, it's as you know, she and I, or he and I. All right. Well, squeeze in one more here. Um, This is from Jeff. Uh, Jeff writes, the subject is Aunt Camille. Frank, whether you want to admit it or not... You are a celebrity with ever-increasing followers on social media. Just the fact that you're so comfortable sharing your family with the world says so much about you and your family. You never let the notoriety get to your head and continue to share with your loyal listeners so many aspects of your life. While most would keep their children from the cameras, you let us see Carmine's growth and development on a regular basis. And that precious Aunt Camille video with her inviting the world into her house is something that is so special to see. I think it's a big part of your appeal. I think a big part of your appeal is that you're so humble and show appreciation for the little things in life. My hope is that you never change and keep in being just an ordinary guy who happens to host a radio show. A show which, by the way, keeps getting better and better. You have a rare talent for interviewing that keeps each day more interesting than the last. That's from Jeff in Verona, New Jersey. That is awfully nice. But uh, I actually am not that humble. I've actually decided I'm no longer allowing... Uh, Philippe or Alex Barnard to look me directly in the eye. I actually have them shield their eyes away from me at all times. So, uh, so much for that humility. Um, Julia writes on the subject of unsolved mysteries. Hi, Frank. I so appreciate your show and admire your cool, level-headed reactions. It so makes the listening easy and stress-free, unlike many others. Unsolved mystery suggestion, Natalie Wood. Ah, another caller said the same thing. All right. Uh, Randall, this is the last one for real. Randall writes on the subject of my son Carmine, have you thought about raising Carmine as a Jew? I highly recommend it. Um, I don't think that's something we're going to do. Well, Carmine is considered Jewish uh, under the laws of Judaism. Neither my wife nor I are practicing Jews. So I think we're going to raise him as a Christian. That is this week's edition of The Mail. Next hour, I will be joined by Libertarian Candidate for Governor of New York, Larry Sharp. In the meantime, keep asking questions. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Tomorrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So, uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz is a world-famous physician, and he's the host, obviously, of the Dr. Oz show. He was one of the, I think he was one of the Oprah creations, I believe. And uh, whatever, he's one of the most well-known doctors in the whole country. Very well-known as a cardiologist, very accomplished as a TV personality, has done very well as the host of that television show. He is currently seeking uh, the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. And it's a very competitive primary. There's a lot of folks in that uh, Republican. And I think it's a a competitive Democratic primary, too, which I love. I love when both parties have competitive primaries. I, I, I love. That's my thing. Voter choice. Give Republicans a great choice, give Democrats a great choice, and give the people in the general election a great choice. And unfortunately, because of gerrymandering and other factors, we really tend to only get those choices in statewide elections. More and more congressional elections are not competitive in either the primary or the general, but we'll put that aside. So Dr. Oz is a United States citizen, obviously, because he's... You know, American. He's also a citizen of Turkey. And this is something that I have commented on before, but um, I continue to be somewhat bothered by the issue of dual citizenship. My view is you should pick a country. Pick a country and be a citizen of that country. I don't think there should be dueling loyalties. And look, I could be an Italian citizen under the laws of of Italy. In fact, they want more citizens. Um, My grandfather, uh, being from Italy, that entitles me to be a dual citizen of Italy. I have no interest in that because I'm an American citizen. That's the country that I embrace and that I identify with. Last Tuesday, the website Politics PA reported that Dr. Raz said he would keep his Turkish citizenship, even if it forced him to forego security clearances as a senator. Now, the Oz campaign denied that the candidate said that, but it did not provide uh, any media outlet with audio of the exchange, which took place during a news conference in Harrisburg. There appears to be no requirement that elected members of Congress renounce their citizenship of other countries in order to attend classified briefing. Nonetheless, his rival in the Republican primary, David McCormick, has been attacking Oz over his dual citizenship, which Oz has said he retains in order to care for his mother in Turkey. Turkey is, of course, a NATO member, but everybody's a NATO member except Ukraine. And um, 
it's ruled by a guy that's a little too close to being an Islamist dictator for my tastes, uh, Erdogan. But some news came out on Wednesday that Dr. Oz said that if he's elected, he would renounce his Turkish citizenship. This is the statement he put out. My dual citizenship has become a distraction in this campaign. The former um, daytime TV personality put out the statement and said, I maintained it to care for my ailing mother, but after several weeks of discussions with my family, I'm committing that before I'm sworn in as the next U.S. Senator for Pennsylvania, I will only be a U.S. citizen. This has come up with other people before. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz, for instance was a Canadian citizen as well as an American citizen because he was actually born in Canada. And he had dual citizenship. He didn't choose it. He was just, because he was born there, he was a citizen, and then he was raised here, and his, uh, I think both of his parents were American citizens. So because he was, both of his parents were American citizens, he was an American citizen even though he was born in Canada. And then when he started running for president, he renounced his Canadian citizenship. My question for you is, what do you think of the idea for dual of dual citizenship? I'm not even talking about politicians. I'm talking about regular people. Is this a practice? And it's been pretty common since at least the 1960s, um, maybe even before that. But is this a practice that you think should continue. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Germany is in the midst of a big debate over dual citizenship right now. And I am just amazed how in this country we take it for granted. And we say, all right, you want to be a citizen of the United States and Italy? Fine. My friend is a citizen of both the United States and Ireland. Fine, okay. I think you should pick one country, and that should be the country you're a citizen of. That's where your loyalties lie. Otherwise, do we really want these dual citizens voting in American elections? Why should a dual citizen's vote count the same way as someone that's just an American citizen? Or in Italy, like if I become a citizen of Italy, I'm not, I don't speak Italian. I'm not up to date on what's happening with Italian politics. And yet, if I were to become a dual citizen of Italy, my vote would count just as much as people that have lived in Italy their whole life. I don't think that's right. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I had a friend, I actually worked with her here. Her name was Rachel also. Wonderful woman. She was a citizen of the United States, of Israel, and of the of the United Kingdom, which at that point was part of the European Union. So it gave her citizenship to the EU. And she was a citizen of three countries. I thought that was too much. What's your view on dual citizenship? I am glad um, Dr. Oz... Look, it doesn't matter too much because I don't think that Dr. Oz is somehow going to be on be a Manchurian candidate advocating on behalf of Turkey and Erdogan. But 
Um, I'm glad that he did renounce this. One, because I, I'm not a big believer in dual citizenship. Two, because it had become a distraction. People, you know, that are voting in Pennsylvania, they shouldn't make a decision. They should make a decision based on a candidate's issues, based on his background, his or her unique expertise in certain areas, not based on whether or not they're a citizen of Turkey. So I think it had become a distraction. I'm glad he said what he's what he said that he's going to do. I just wonder if we should allow this as a country. It, look, I guess this debate has already been settled because I don't really hear any voices on the world stage saying, or on the American stage at least, saying we should do away with this. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Tom's in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, hi, Frank. I'd like to say that it's my thinking that uh, dual citizenships are just for people of big money because they may have holdings in those other countries, big money, and they'd be spending a lot of money there and uh, and over here. So maybe that's why it's tolerated. Is that possible? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure that does happen, but I don't think um, – I don't think that's that's why it's tolerated. It was tolerated because a lot of Americans also wanted to be citizens of Israel or Italy or or Mexico or or other places. So <clears throat> my friend Coach, for instance, is not a wealthy guy, regular middle class guy. He was born in the United States. His parents were from Ireland. They moved to the United States. He was born here. That makes him an American citizen. But. Around the time that he was maybe 10 or 11, he moved to Ireland and he spent his formative years in Ireland, high school and college. Then after he was done with college, he moved back to the United States. He remembered the United States from his youth, liked it, moved back there. And he has citizenship in both the United States because he was born here and in Ireland because his parents were Irish citizens and because he grew up there, he came of age there. He He's not a wealthy guy. It has nothing to do with a, a tax shelter. I just, I don't love the idea. And I am just curious what other people think about this. This is, you know, I, I don't know. Germany, it's a major controversy. Here, it does not appear to be a major controversy. Here in the United States and in other countries. This debate over dual citizenship has been marked by two totally diametrically opposed points of view about citizenship, nationality, national loyalty, and national identity. On the one hand, there are people like me who are troubled about the implications of dual citizenship or dual nationality. I am, and not just me, but others, are alarmed at its increase And I see this as undermining the integration of immigrants into society and into our political civic life. I think it changes the entire meaning and understanding of national identity. Um, And especially here in the United States, where we are a country of immigrants, integration of immigrants used to be considered one of the glories and the achievements of American society and politics. But now, you know, we're not really asking them to integrate. We're asking them to keep one foot in the United States and one foot in Mexico. 
but others disagree. Others think that um, uh, dual citizenship is understandable and it's an expected consequence of immigration. More than that, some people say it offers a promise of a better world, of multiple loyalties and identities in which nationalism and chauvinism are reduced and toleration is increased. Perhaps multiple citizenship was an early stage in the rise of a new kind of multinational cosmopolitan citizenship. What say you? Now, again, I don't necessarily blame anyone that wants to be a dual because, I, you know, look, I'll admit it's kind of cool. It's why I thought of it. I blame our country, which allows these laws. I think you just, our law should be pick a country. Pick a country. Uh, Vladimir Posner, for instance, who's been a guest on this show, he's a citizen of three countries, the United States, Russia, and France. Gee, do you think the interests of the United States and Russia might ever one distant day in the distant, distant future, you think they might ever come into conflict? So do you want someone that's a Russian citizen Vote. Let's say we go to war with Russia. That's not that far off of a possibility. Do you really want someone voting simultaneously in Russian elections and American elections? I don't. 800-848-9222. What say you? Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Hey, good morning. Well, you just you just stole my thunder. I was just going to say about the war. What do you do? Do you do you tell people, oh, okay, you got to go to this country or this country? I mean, what do you do? That's the whole the whole idea of a citizenship is to don't you have to like you know pledge your allegiance to America? And does that mean that you don't have allegiance to other countries? I would think so. I'm with you. One, pick one, pick one. Uh, with states, you can be dual citizens of states, but can you vote in both states? Can I vote for the governor of New Jersey and New York if I have health? No, not legally. No. You see, that's what I'm saying. No, well, so why, well, why that's not a great example no. because because New York and New Jersey elect their governors in uh, different years. But you couldn't say vote for governor of New Jersey and mayor of New York. You couldn't do that in the same year. I got you. Okay. Okay. Well, then why should you- are dual citizens, they're allowed to vote here and vote in Italy as well? That's not yes, right. Yes, that, that's what I'm saying. That's yeah. what I'm saying. My friend, um, my friend, uh, Coach, again, he's sort of a, I'd, I'd characterize him as a right of center guy. He votes Republican usually here in America. And then I said, well, what do you do in the Irish elections? Do you follow what's going on in Irish uh, politics? No, I just vote for yeah. the party that's closest to Republican out there. And I just vote straight down that party line. And now, who's getting screwed here? The, the Irish or the American? 800-848-9222. And again, if you disagree, fine. Fine. Disagree. I'm not going to shout you down. In fact, as you can hear, my voice is a little scratchy. I'll let you say as much as you want. Henry is in Manhattan. Hello, Henry. Uh, uh, hi, Frank. Uh, I, I think... Uh in some sense, you're looking at it from the wrong uh, end of the telescope. Uh, what I think is that the driver of dual citizenship is not the individual, but the country. To a country, a citizen of it is an asset. So 
so a country wants as many citizens as it can get. And uh, uh, I I remember there was a a case of Estonia a few years back that uh, decided they have too small a population. Anything that they can do to increase their population or at least the people that would be there, uh, have assets there, whatever they do. So they set up some kind of a program to, if you came there, if you put a certain amount of money in the bank, you got you got a passport. A passport's a very important aspect of citizenship. So I think people are the... Uh, uh, the pawns in this game of countries to get as many citizens as possible. Well, you might be right. Uh, you might be right, Henry. Um, sounds like you've studied the issue pretty closely. I still don't like it. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Frank, I'm in complete agreement with you as a native New Yorker. Even though people saw me, they would probably think that I was probably from Hong Kong or Beijing in appearance. I tell them, no, I'm, I was born in Manhattan. I'm a native New Yorker. I speak American English. That's my primary language. Now, I understand in other countries it might be advisable. I have relatives in Hong Kong who still have their British passports. And as you know, given recent events in Hong Kong, sure. why that would be advisable. Sure. So um, for our country... It sounds like you don't think that we should allow this practice of dual citizenship. I think it should be discouraged, but uh, I, I would not uh, systematically seek out and, and tell people choose one or the other. Now, but, John, uh, I uh, I saw that you were on hold on a couple of other topics as well. you want to comment quickly on any of the other subjects that we've covered today? Sure. I agree with you about uh, the Babylon Bee. It was a joke. I mean, it's... I mean, that, that you can swimmer, I, I agree with you about the transgender issue. Uh, he, she should not have even been competing against other uh, biologically, uh, biological women, as it were. But uh, it is what it is. And I, I think uh, whoever banned the Babylon Bee made too much of it. As for your interview with Colonel McGovern, I thought it was better than some of the others I've heard, but um, I would have liked to have heard more about him discussing the poor performance of the Russian military against the Ukrainians. That I would have found very, very insightful. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, just for the record, Ray McGovern was not a colonel. He was a CIA officer, decorated CIA officer, um, who actually received the Intelligence Commendation Medal. When he retired and he returned it in 2006 uh, to protest some CIA behavior that was going on. Susie is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Susie. Hi. Hi. I, I just wanted to call about you brought up Dr. Oz running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. Sure. And he also I, he's a dual citizen with uh, between Turkey and the United States. He also served in the Turkey. Turkish military, but he's not even a resident of Pennsylvania. He's using a relative's address as his address. 
It, you know, I, I have heard stuff like that, and I, and I assume that he spent a lot of time in New York. Uh, so I was somewhat surprised when he agreed to uh, to run in Pennsylvania. But we've seen in politics, Susie, that uh, carpetbagging is nothing new. Certainly, I don't think you could call Hillary Clinton a resident of uh, of New York when she was elected to the U.S. Senate back in 2000. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, Robert Kennedy, I think the same thing. Same thing goes on. Alan Keyes, when he ran for U.S. Senate in Illinois, not from Illinois, the Constitution says you only have to be a resident of the state at the time of the election. doesn't say you have to live there six months or a year. It just says you have to live there at the time of the election. That's why every year you see a few people that run for Congress or U.S. Senate in multiple different states. I always love paying attention to those guys. They run, run like five different states, uh, which is kind of cool, uh, I always thought. Uh, Jennifer is in Boston. Hello, Jennifer. Hey, Frank. Um, first of all, the, I don't think that women should really say that or it should be put out there about um, Emmett Oz um, unless it's actually known to be a fact. Well, that um, has so, been reported that that he's not a yeah. real, not really a Pennsylvania well, resident. Well, like you said, is he following the rules or is that reported? Is it fact? You know what I mean? Yeah, you're I, right. I just, you're right. Yeah, people are. I'll, I'll, let me say, people are claiming that uh, it's not a I'm true saying. resident. See, yes. yeah. See, people claim a lot of things, especially when they have opposing views. So this I'm is not true. saying that could couldn't be correct. Gotcha, gotcha. Good, good um, absolutely. So thank you for letting me insert that there. <laughs> um, regarding what you said earlier, um, um, someone brought up to you about um, oh god, his name's just totally escaped me now. What were we talking about? Oh, the guy that George Soros. Sorry, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure. just late here tonight. Um, about him being having uh, the elderly man that called, he was quite quite bright though when he was talking about him having ties to the Nazi Party, and you said that that's been said before, but that effect, you recall that? Yes, yes, yes. I saw a segment with George Soros on sixty Minutes being interviewed. I believe it was by Steve Croft. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I, I've seen it. It's from uh, nineteen ninety eight. Did you hear where he talks about going with the Nazis to collect things from the Jews? Yeah, um, well, paintings and personal items and things like that. What he said was, and I'll, um, you know, I'll link to it so people can watch it for themselves and draw their own conclusion. But what he had said was that when he was uh, 13, as there were hundreds of thousands of Jews being shipped off to Nazi death camps, when he was 13 years old, he accompanied his uh, phony godfather on his rounds as the godfather was confiscating property from the Jews. So in the interview, and I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Morano fan. In the interview, Soros says that he didn't participate in the confiscation, that he was merely brought along by this by this godfather of his. Can I can I just add one thing sure. that he says at the end of it? When and when uh, I think it was Steve Cross, if I'm correct, and he yes. says, uh, do you feel badly about that? You have, you know, no. You said if I didn't do it, someone else would have. Yeah. Uh, again, it's been a while since I've uh, I've seen the interview, so I'm going to link to it and uh, people can watch it for themselves. I just think he's a very very evil man, and uh, I don't. I, I think you at thirteen or I at thirteen would uh, would have at least had some uh, feeling about what we had done and, and the horrible horrible plight of the other Jews around us. And, and yeah, you, you're not going to get me to defend George Soros, Jennifer. Uh, uh, but uh, I, I thank you, and thanks for the call, Jennifer. Um, you know, 
as much as I might not like George Soros and some of the things that he does in this country and even in Ukraine, to call someone a Nazi is such a dynamite charge. And if what he says in this interview is true, that he basically at 13 years old accompanied his phony godfather as the godfather was confiscating material from the Jews, that doesn't make you a Nazi. It doesn't, especially at 13. I'd like to think I wouldn't do the same thing at 13, but you know what? I was blessed not at, at 13 not to live in a country occupied and run by the Nazis. Um, you, again, I, I don't want to defend George Soros here, but he's not a Nazi, bottom line. Uh, someone who is also not a Nazi is Larry Sharp. Uh, he is the libertarian candidate for governor. He's going to join me next. Uh, we're going to talk about his candidacy and the governor's race in general. Looking more and more, I saw while I was watching Jeopardy last night, more and more Andrew Cuomo commercials. Is he coming back? Well, that's one of the issues we'll pose to Larry Sharp. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Daisy is darling, Iris is sweet, Lily is lovely, blossoms a tree. Of all the sweethearts a guy could meet when I finally chose an American beauty role. Camellia's tragic, she can't be mine. Magnolia's magic, it makes Maggie shine. The great Frank Sinatra singing American Beauty Rose. If you ever want to hear great Sinatra music, be sure to listen to my friend Joe Piscopo every Sunday evening on the Ramsey Mazda Sundays with Sinatra show beginning at 6 p.m. Does a great job right here on 77 WABC. Well, uh, we have a big, big election for governor of New York this year. And there I don't know that there's I know they say this for every election every year. I genuinely don't know if there's been a more important gubernatorial election year. There's a lot at stake in every aspect of New York life. So I have been trying to interview all of the candidates for governor. And one of the candidates that is getting a lot of momentum as a third-party candidate is somebody that uh, far exceeded expectations four years ago. Four years ago, he did so well running as a libertarian candidate that he actually got the Libertarians' ballot access in New York State for the very first time. Uh, He's a business consultant, an entrepreneur, and once again, the Libertarian nominee for governor of New York State, Larry Sharp. Larry, thanks for getting up early with us. Uh, Maybe I didn't even go to sleep, man. What are you talking about? (laughs) I am very happy to be here. Thanks, Frank. I love it. My kind of guy. Now, um, a lot of our listeners, and we have listeners not just in New York but all over the country, A lot of our listeners are hearing your name and hearing your voice for the very first time. Give us the sort of 60-second elevator pitch. Who are you? What's your background in business? What's your profession? What do you do for a living? What's your background in politics? 
This is a, a great question. For those who actually care, it's very easy if you like. If you could um, just Google Larry Sharp. That makes things a lot easier for everybody. And if you want to see a good interview, Google Larry Sharp and Glenn Beck. Uh, that's probably one of my, my best interviews I've done if you want to do that. It's about, an, it's about an hour long, but it's a very detailed interview on, on how I think. But I'm a, and a New you, Yorker. By the way, I do, I do have to say you did a great interview uh, with Joe Rogan a few years ago I as did. well. That got a lot of attention. Absolutely. So the thing that's, that's interesting about being a third party is you have to talk about actual issues and policies. I'll cover that in a second. Let me answer your first question, then I'll head to the next one. My name is Larry Sharp, as I said, born in Manhattan, raised in the Bronx as a little kid, then out on Long Island as an older kid, joined the Marine Corps at 17 because my father passed away when I was a kid, lost, um, went up to the Marines for seven years, glad I did it, came back. My mother was in trouble. She couldn't handle my father's death and me leaving. And she wound up becoming an addict and eventually becoming uh, a felon. I tried to help her out by getting her up and rock and rolling, started a small trucking business to to get her back in back on track, left that business, went after my own business, failed at that business, sold that one off, went back to working and doing different things, then started this business now as a consultant. And I started doing that, working with small and large companies, teaching, training in business and leadership. I've also taught at Columbia and uh, John Jay and uh, also here at Baruch and Yale. And my mom eventually retired. She couldn't stay in New York State. New York State is so oppressive that people can't retire here. So she had to pack up and move to South Carolina. And she missed my daughter, which was terrible. The, the New York State is so bad, it literally breaks up families. My mom actually wound up dying in South Carolina, not dying here in New York with their family. And that's a problem that we have consistently all over the place. I want New Yorkers to want to retire here and spend their pensions here and not spend them in Florida. Then um, after that, I decided, you know, maybe it's time for me to pack up and leave. So I thought about leaving. Around 2017, I'm thinking about going to North Carolina because for what I do, I need to have a big business, big business around me, a large city. So I thought I'd go to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I went down and I realized I could sell my shoebox of a house here in Queens. I live in Astoria, Queens, and buy a mansion in North Carolina and pay less taxes and be happier. And instead of me doing it, I got angry. And I thought, why? Do I have to leave? Why does New York State suck? Why do I have to leave my family, my friends, my business, where I grew up? In an amazing state. And for those of you who don't live in New York, I'm going to give you some news. New York is an amazing state. It's a state that has everything you could possibly want in it. The largest city in the country. It has hunting. It has fishing. It has skiing. It has falls. It has farmland. Whatever you like. You like sports. You like opera. Doesn't matter. This state has it. How about the restaurant? How about the restaurant? Yes. It's our government that sucks. So I came back to change our government, run for government in 2018 and fix it all. And Frank, you'll be shocked. It didn't go as planned. (laughs) I did not win that election. So instead of me giving up though after I lost, I decided to cross the state. As you said, we got ballot access for the Libertarian Party trying to create a real third party. I crossed the state and I said, I'm going to keep going. And I crossed the state and we got 107 victories in 2019. Most people don't know. There were 107 libertarians elected in New York State, one of the bluest states in the union, if not the bluest state. And we had 107 libertarians elected. And then the year after they decided, well, we we can't have Larry Sharp do that. And they removed ballot access from my party. And now I have to do it all over again. 
So I'm back in action, Frank. Do it one more time. Uh, well, um, I think uh, I think you're speaking for a lot of people now. Just so folks understand your political journey, I think a lot of folks may be sympathetic on both the left and the right to your motivating factor in terms of getting involved in state politics, which is the cost of living, among other things. But they might yes. say, why not do it within the auspices of one of the major parties, Republican or Democrat? Why choose a third party vehicle? Sure. I'll give you a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, a Democrat in uh, to run a statewide election is only selected by the party favorites. That's it. I have zero chance of getting the Democratic nomination. It's always the top of the line, whoever's in charge. Right. So it was Cuomo and now it's Hochul. They don't even want a primary. They're fighting a primary. Right. So I would have zero chance of that. No chance whatsoever. Second piece, Republicans. Republicans can't win in this state. It is impossible. My chance of winning is slim. Republican chance is zero. Republicans have not won a statewide election in this state in 20 years. Nothing. They haven't won AG, Senate, governor, nothing in 20 years. And the state's getting bluer, not redder. If you remember, Florida used to be a swing state. It's not anymore. It's a red state. Why? Because we've exported all of our Republicans down to California. So we turned the state red. It, New York Blue, state is mean. three to one. Democrat to Republican statewide and six to one in New York City. So running as a Republican is a colossal waste of time in a statewide election. Don't get me wrong. Republicans win locally in our state all the time. Statewide, zero chance. So me running as any of the two major parties, zero chance of success. It's a waste of time. I I couldn't do it even if I wanted to. But the second piece is I'm not going to make any impact doing that. The impact is third party because the impact is the only way that you can cross over. Now, I'm saying this not just to say, I said that if I ran in it 2018, and even if I lost, I could make change in the state and get people thinking. And I did. Absolutely happened. And 107 victories is proof of that. I also then said, Libertarian Party is the only party that can accept everybody, left and right. You can be as liberal or as conservative as you want to be. You just don't want to force your views on others. Let Brooklyn be Brooklyn. Let Staten Island be Staten Island. Let Broome County be Broome County. Let you know Erie County be Erie County. Leave people alone and we can survive. We can get people together. If we really believe in diversity, and I do, then why do we keep having one-size-fits-all plans for everything in this state and the city? That's the problem. Let's really be diverse and let people be who they want to be. Now, I have proof of that. Zogby polls come out twice in a row. Two different Zogby polls, not purchased by me, independently purchased. And in both cases, I polled at 6% and I haven't even started running yet, polling at 6%. And here's the best part about it. You can see that when you add me into the mix from the top two, Republican, Democrat, I gain from both Democratic voters, Republican voters, and those who are considered unsure. My biggest chunk comes from unsure. You also see that when people voted for me last time, about 25% of them we're actually registered Democrats. So you can see that I actually do cross over. People do come to my, my area because I'm talking about actual solutions, not just other guy bad. People don't want to hear that anymore. Uh, we're talking with Larry Sharp. He's the libertarian nominee for governor of New York State. Uh, ran four years ago, got uh, ballot access for the libertarians. If you want to check out his website, you can go to LarrySharp.com. That's Sharp with an E. Larry, you know, most of my political experience has been in the third party sector, the third party sphere. Yep. So, you know, 
The question I'm not about to I'm about to ask you is not a reflection of my views or how I view the situation, but I have to get this out of the way because there are a lot sure. of listeners that view it this way. <clears throat> Isn't a vote for a third-party candidate like you or any third-party candidate a wasted vote? Wouldn't my vote yep. be better off being spent on one of the candidates with a better chance of winning? I love that question, and I'm going to bring it up specifically in New York State because that's what we're talking about here. Think about it. There were, if you voted last time in 2018 for the Democrat, if you spent your time, money, and energy on the Democrat nominee, which was Andrew Cuomo at the time, if you spent your time, money, and energy on on that person, what did you get? Nothing. You got the same old policies, a broken state. You took your money, time, and your vote, you threw it in the garbage. What if you voted for the Republican last time around? What'd you get? Nothing. You took your time, money, and energy and threw it in the garbage. Both wasted votes. But what if you had instead decided to vote on me in 2018? What if you decided to put your time, money, and energy into my campaign? I'm still here, number one. All the rest are all gone. Everybody who ran in 2018 is gone. I'm still here. Not just that. I got ballot access and made change in the state. You actually had a change in the state. It was removed by the state. But I gave you actual change. Not just that. My website, with all my policies, has never gone down. You go to LarrySharp.com. A lot of the same policies from 2018 have added more. There are ideas there for you. You can't find policy on anybody else's uh, website. So the only person who it was not a waste for was me. Everyone else, you took your time, your money, and your energy, and you threw it in the garbage. My vote was actually an investment. Time and money with me was an investment. And again, that's demonstrable. You can see it right now here in New York State. So folks are trying to understand your candidacy and the rationale behind it. Do you think that you can actually win the election or is this about primarily restoring ballot access for the libertarians and uh, carving out and crafting a message that future voters will respond to? It's a great, it's a great question. Is there a chance for victory? Yes. Is it a high chance? I'm not fooling myself. It isn't. Let me explain why. As I said before, the Republican can't win the state. So there are two separate options. Either the Democrat will win or an outsider will win, right? So either Democrat wins or, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, who's a cool guy? Maybe Mark Cuban comes up from Florida and spends $10 billion and wins, right? Some outsider. I hope I'm that outsider, right? People do know who I am. I'm already polling well already. If Hochul makes a big mistake, I could win. That's how it has to work. Sadly, I can't control that. Why? You know a lot of Republicans. And I would want you to think about the Republicans that you know and ask them what it would take for them to vote for a Democrat. What would it take for them to vote for Kathy Hochul? And there are some people now who are watching and listening who are literally laughing because there's nothing. Well, here's what I would say. Democrats feel the same way about Republicans. They feel exactly the same way. They're not voting for the Republican. Doesn't matter. If Kathy Hochul screws up badly, those votes come to me. So I have to run a hardcore campaign to the best of my ability raise money as I did last time. I raised over half a million dollars last time. Try. And if she screws up, I can win. Why? New York state is not a majority state. It's a plurality state. I only have to have more than the rest. 
in theory, I could win with 35 percent of the vote. So what you're saying, so, let's say let's say a very controversial Democrat were to emerge as the winner of the primary. Let's say Andrew Cuomo, for instance, who people may not yeah. like for sexual harassment reasons or for the nursing home reasons. And a lot of Demo- example and Democrats may not want to vo- vote for someone like that to be governor, but they could never vote for them, bring themselves to vote for an Andrew Giuliani, for instance. They'd be more likely to gravitate towards you. Hundred percent. And I think the data already from the last election is in that unhappy Democrats voted for me. That's what actually happens. So that is my chance for victory. But I want to be very realistic. Let's say I can't win. Okay, no worries. What if I come in second? What if I beat the Republican? Which could happen. If I beat the Republican in this race, you know what happens? The entire state changes. Because you know, as well as uh, many other people do, this state legally is run by the top two parties which means all of a sudden the state's run by Democrats and Libertarians. Now, that can't happen. They simply aren't enough Libertarians in the state. It couldn't work. They have to rewrite the rules. And they would. They would rewrite the rules. But when they rewrite the rules, it would include now third parties. Third parties matter. Why do they matter? Because without third parties, no one's talking about ideas. They're only talking about the other guy is bad. You've all gotten the, uh, the emails, the email that comes. If you, if, you, if you lean left, the email says, Stop us from, you know, uh, let's stop Trumpism from destroying the world. Give me money. And if you're on the right, you get the email that says, Patriot, let's stop the evil socialists from destroying our country. Send me money. None of those say, here's what I'm going to do to make your life better. Right. They just say, let me stop you. You know, let me stop the other guy. Give me money. But I talk about actual policy issues, what we can actually do. Third parties will make that happen. So me even coming in second makes that happen. We we add third parties, which is the only way to heal our country. We can heal our country with a third party because now if you're a Democrat, you can't cross the aisle and talk to a Republican. You lose your seat. You're a Republican. You can't cross the aisle and talk to a Democrat. You lose your seat. But if there are libertarians in, guess what? You can talk to libertarians and we can actually be the peacemakers. We can actually, Democrats are supposed to be about civil liberties. I mean, clearly they're not. But they're supposed to be. But libertarians are. You would have better Democrats because some would actually have to care about civil liberties or they'll lose their seat. They won't be able to get elected. Republicans are supposed to be about small business, less taxes, smaller government. I mean, clearly they're not either. But if you had a powerful libertarian party, they would have to be. You will get better Democrats and better Republicans just if the libertarian party does well. And we don't have to run everything. We don't have to be 51% of the assembly or the state Senate. Right now in the state Senate, if there were four libertarians, we would run the Senate because we'd be the swing vote. In fact, that'll be the national level too. We have three libertarians national level. Oh, well, especially at the national level where it's 50-50. What is the single biggest issue if you had to pick one in your campaign? There are so many, oh my God, but the overall issue, overall is actually the budget. Now, that's not sexy and exciting. I know it isn't, but that is the overall issue. Everything has to go back to that. We have lost about two and a half million people in New York State for the past 10 years or so, and our budget's gone up by like 50 billion. So you don't have to be, a, you know, have a, a degree in math to figure out we're paying more individually, and people just keep leaving. So it's the budget along with people leaving the state. I said in 2018 that I would be judged if I won by whether I stopped the bleeding of people leaving the state in 2018. If people were still leaving, I was a failure. If they weren't leaving, I was winning. And I would count that same thing. 
people have to stay. And one of the biggest reasons why people leave is that the rate, the cost of living is so high. Add crime on top of that in most of the cities. Crime isn't that big of a deal outside the cities. I mean, it is, but nowhere near um, actually compared to in the cities. So let's talk about cost of living and then lifestyle. Let's talk about crime. Uh, Kathy Hochul unveiled her plan for correcting bail reform, giving judges more discretion in asking for bail, uh, better use of Kendra's law. What would the Larry Sharp approach to be to fixing the crime problem in New York? If you want to deal with bail reform, I'll touch crime and bail reform, bail reform first. What drives me crazy is my entire discussion of bail reform was for one thing. Bail reform should be focused on first-time offenders. If you just focus on first-time offenders, these problems go away. First-time offender is the best chance of someone who got arrested for something stupid and may change their life. First-time offender is the person who might have been arrested because they were in the wrong place, wrong time, and didn't do anything. First-time offender is the key issue. First-time offenders, we worried mostly about things like ankle bracelets and such. You look at all these horrible crimes being uh, being committed by people who skipped out on bail, all of them are multiple-time arrestee, all of them multiple-time offenders, all of them. The key, I can't believe we did such a terrible job of doing that. That's what I want us to focus bail reform on. The person who either isn't, is, is innocent and they made a mistake in arresting the person, or the person who made an error and has a chance of actually you know, getting their life together. First-time offender is what we should have focused bail reform on that we didn't was such a miss and an embarrassment in how we did that. So first-time offender for bail reform. Crime. Crime is not because there are worse people in the city or because people are mean. Crime always goes up in waves like this because of one reason only, the black market. That's why it goes up. It's the black market. You look throughout history of America. Every time there's massive crime waves, it's always gang-related uh, uh, um, crime that shoots the crime wave, wave up hugely. We have two different issues here in New York City, in most cities, but New York City. One is, of course, tons of black market gang gang violence. And the second is people who are either homeless or have mental issues or addiction issues uh, in, in our city. Both so, of those were directly caused by our COVID lockdown protocols. That's what made everything terrible. Things got bad in 2020 and 2021. Why? We locked everybody down. We took all our young men and said, you know what? Don't go to school. Don't go to work. Stay home with no purpose. And the gang leader said, thank you. Oh, my God. This is a recruitment night. This is a recruitment um, um, wet dream. I'm so glad I have all of these uh, people now to join my gangs. And, of course, they're having violence out in the middle of the street. How do you enforce your contracts when you can't call the cops or use courts? This is the black market is. You use violence. That's how it works. So there's a black market now in everything. Drugs. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Uh, That's probably the biggest black market uh, item is for hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. Uh, Governor Larry Sharp would push to legalize those things. Cannabis, cannabis, cannabis. I've been talking about it forever and I'll keep talking about it. Right. We should we should uh, regulate cannabis like a plant. I said regulate like onions. Why does that matter? You want to regulate cannabis like so a farmer can make it. So the poor person can literally grow up in their backyard if they want. I want the little guy to win. I always talk about helping the working poor and the middle class. We help the working poor and the middle class. We'll make a better New York. Well, how about heroin? So what how we, about heroin? If you, you don't want to legalize these drugs, what you want to do is completely decriminalize cannabis 
and decriminalize possession. Those are the two key key pieces, right? So cannabis should be easily, the reason why cannabis matters so much, people don't get this. 80% of all of our addicts came from an opioid prescription. If there were cannabis products, a bunch of people wouldn't use opioids. We know this to be true. It's happened in other countries. They start using cannabis products, which are not addictive. So what happens? First off, you stop creating addicts. Second, people who are trying to kick the habit. I know my mother was an addict. I've been through this. If you have an addict in your, in your family, you know this to be true. Once they start going to withdrawals, they just want to go right back to the drug. Use a cannabis product. It mitigates the withdrawal so they can actually get clean. My mom was clean when she died. She never went back. This can work. It can happen. You can still save your loved ones. But not just that. We're getting mad at, at people bringing fentanyl into the country. And we should. But again, if, you're, if you've had an addict in your life, you know what I'm going to say is true. A lot of addicts are looking for fentanyl. It's not a mistake. When addicts see people who are overdosing, that doesn't turn them away. It turns them on. They're looking for it. They actually want that stronger high. They go for it. We have to get them to not be going for it. How do we do that? Cannabis products and not arresting them because they possess it. Again, they rob somebody. That's a crime. They knock somebody over the head. That's assault. It's a crime. If they're committing crimes to get their drugs, that's a crime. The fact that they have the drug should never be a crime. That is a cry for help. Let's get them help. And we can do that. Larry, that's the uh, best we're going to have to end it there. We'll, we'll talk again soon. We're going to be talking to you a lot between now and November. If people want to learn more about Larry and his positions on other issues, or if you want to volunteer for the upcoming petition drive, uh, you can go to Larry's website and uh, get all that information. That's Larry Sharp with an E dot com. And the Thanks, e Larry. stands for electable. Don't forget that. <laughs> Best of luck <laughs> to you, my friend. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thank you. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Born to be a roughneck, I'll never amount to nothing. Pulling keys and laying pipes. Shack about a half a mile from town. Papa was a driller on a wildcat crew, and my mama never was around. I learned to cuss when I was two and fight when I was three. And by the time I was five, there was no kid alive could ever get the best of me. The great Johnny Cash, Roughneck. Absolutely love it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, a lot of you have been asking the status of our cat, Bathsheba. That's my wife's favorite cat. And she is, by any objective measure, the nicest of the three. So she had some sudden weight loss. We took her to the vet. They said all her tests were normal. Um, come back. Uh, they gave her something for her eye because she was experiencing some conjunctivitis for her eye. Uh, come back in a couple of weeks. We'll see where we are. Uh, still, you know, weight far below normal. Lost a lot of weight. And this time they did a blood pressure test, and they found that she had extremely high blood pressure. So they gave us some medication. She's been taking the medication. And yesterday she went back to the veterinarian, and uh, thankfully her blood pressure is normal. So uh, that is certainly good news, shows that the medication is working. She's got to keep taking it. 
but it shows that the medication is working and her conjunctivitis around her eye has cleared, which is also a positive news. By the way, I told you I went to the doctor on Saturday to get my throat examined. They did a blood pressure test on me and I was very pleased. My blood pressure was almost perfect. I said, well, what's perfect? They said 120 over 80. What am I? 120 over 82. So just two little points away from a perfect blood pressure. It is amazing what uh, skipping two and a half weeks of booze and cheese will do for you. (laughs) Because a lot of times I give blood a lot. A lot of times I do have elevated, uh, you know, not not hypertension or anything, but blood pressure that's a little higher. And I, uh, you know, it's something you keep an eye on. But a couple of weeks without booze, lo and behold, blood pressure is almost perfect. So, um, by the way, I did get the results of my throat culture back yesterday, and it says normal. No strep, no uh, whatever other bacteria they uh, they tested for. So, I was all set as the PA that, I, that examined me on Saturday recommended to stop taking this antibiotic. But my throat still hurts. And so my wife said, you know, take it for one, another day or two. Just take it for another day or two. Maybe it'll kill whatever's in you. So I don't like doing that. I don't like taking antibiotics uh, for a host of reasons. I don't like taking anything. And um, she said, I'll take the antibiotic because she could see how much I was struggling to swallow. Uh, And up until today, I didn't feel any strain in my voice. Now I do. I don't know if you hear it. But now I do feel a bit of strain strain in my uh, throat. So she had me take some ibuprofen. Uh, which she said would reduce the uh, inflammation. And uh, so I took it. She said, how many did you take? I said, I took one. She said, no, one doesn't do anything. You got to take at least two. I said, I don't like to do that because, you know, I don't I don't take any medicine. I don't take aspirin. I don't take anything. So I feel like a, a little bit of medicine with me would pack an extra wallop. Uh, but on my wife's urging, I did, because I'm doing the Bernie and Sid show today, too, from 6 to 7, I did take two right before the show. So I feel pretty good. Hopefully, whatever strain ha- is happening in my voice clears up. So I'm not sure exactly what the, si- what the situation is. I don't think I'm going to take the antibiotic after today, but we'll see. I get a lot of good medical advice from people that email. We'll see. Until next hour, your influence counts. So use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, and uh, I'm with you until 5 o'clock this morning. Thank you for listening. So I see, Matt Blaze, that you you did 
take my advice, you finished Aunt Camille's egg salad. I did not. Oh, you did not? Who did? Uh, Philippe. Oh, Philippe finished it. I let Philippe take the three-week-old egg salad. No, it was not three weeks old. It was one so, week old. Uh, not even one week old. I said I'll wait for the new batch. No, it was not even one week old. It was at most a week old. Philippe, what was your review of the egg salad? I think it's solid. It's a solid egg salad. I think it's well-seasoned, and it's it's good. Yeah, and again, if people want to see that video, uh, my Aunt Camille took us behind the scenes of her whole methodology. Um, that is on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. I got such a reaction to that video and to the segments that we've been doing on Egg Salad, and I was surprised that more than one person has said to me that either right now, currently, or at a different point in their life, they have eaten, they eat egg saladed every day, every day for lunch in the form of a sandwich or, you know, or however they, they have it. So the Atlantic is, you know, it's a publication. I don't love a lot of the opinion stuff that comes out of the Atlantic, but the Atlantic had this article. It's a couple of years old now. Uh, it's from March of 2019. So it's, I guess, exactly three years old. But I'm going to link to it. And I want you to read it at uh, when you can. Keep listening to the show, but read it later. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. And it's all about the people who eat the same meal every day. Um, one person quoted in the article said, Variety doesn't really matter to me. I would be perfectly happy to eat the same Caesar salad or peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day. It chronicles person after person who eat the same meal every day. Vern Loomis, retired structural draftsman in West Bloomfield, Michigan, had a standard office lunch, a peanut butter Sandwich with various fruit, a vegetable, and dessert accompaniments. He ate this every workday for 25 years. Now, his his meal underwent slight modifications over time. Jelly was added to the sandwich in the final five years or so, but its foundation remained the same. It was, the meal was easy to prepare, it was cheap, and it was tasty. So, it goes and it chronicles a bunch of other people that have done the same thing. And the list of people that do this have the same meal every day. Very college football coaches, fitness chain CEOs, TV personalities, fashion designers, dead philosophers, Anderson Cooper. Now, The Atlantic writes, depending on the context, eating the same thing every day can come off as a moderately charming quirk, an indictment of one's lack of creativity, or a signal of professional focus and drive. Now, I don't really care if people have the same meal every day. It doesn't bother me. I don't think it makes you more creative or anything else. But I am curious about the people that do this. I used to work every day with Joe Piscopo. 
I would be, I was his producer. So when I was Joe's producer, when I was producing Joe's show, I would order him breakfast just about every day. And then later when we got interns, I would have the interns do it. And he would have, excuse me, he would have the same meal every single day. Burnt French toast, no butter, dripping with maple syrup and a trip, a, a, a triple espresso and a banana. I haven't worked with Joe in years. I still remember his order verbatim. He eats this for breakfast every single day that he comes to work. Every single day. I, I could never do this. I, for two reasons. One is I think it would get a little boring. But two, I, I would feel like I'm missing out on so many other things. My wife, I was, um, my wife has eggs for breakfast just about every day. And I love eggs too. It's one of my favorite foods. And so a lot of times when I offer her this egg salad, which is available to me, she says, no, I had eggs for breakfast. I said, didn't you have eggs for breakfast yesterday? Yeah, because we, we don't have breakfast together except on the weekends. Yes, but I have it every day. And I said to her, I mean, she, I think, does it a few different ways. Some days it's scrambled. Some days it's fried. Some days it's an omelet. I I said, don't you feel like you're missing out on all these other breakfast foods? Don't you feel like one day maybe you want to try oatmeal or pancakes or waffles or a fruit smoothie or a breakfast cereal or, you know, I don't know, anything else? And she said, no, I like the eggs. It's a good source of protein. I know what I'm getting. They're easy to prepare. I am so curious who among you whether it's breakfast lunch or dinner have the same meal every day 800-848-WABC 800-848-9222 sometimes even when I go to a restaurant that I love I stop I always I get something different because I don't want to always duplicate what I'm having I keep thinking I'm you know I'm missing out on what else is out there. So uh, there's this sushi restaurant I like in my neighborhood. And I went there three or four times in a row. And I was always getting the spicy roll combo. And once the Asian ladies that worked in this restaurant had my order memorized, I stopped getting it. Nope. No more. Done. And then, you know, I was, I'm trying to do kind of a low carb thing now. And I always try to stay away from carbs just because I, I put on weight so easily with with carbs. And so I was trying to get no rice. And, you know, that's sashimi. Sashimi has no rice. And so my wife would order our Japanese food sometimes when we get it to deliver. And she said, oh, let me guess. You want a sashimi deluxe and a tuna pizza. As soon as she had my order memorized, done, not ordering it anymore. I can't be that predictable. Uh, this show, people always say, oh, you know, it, whenever they, whenever people expect me to do something on this show, I'll always do something different. If there's a story that I'm always commenting on and then the whole rest of the media is commenting on it, I have to go the other way. So I've never gotten the whole have every meal, the, the same thing every day. I'm curious if you have. 
And why? Aren't you curious to try what's out there? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Matt, where are you on this? I, I, I don't know your eating habits that well, but I feel like you would not be a same meal every day. I go through stages where I, I might eat the same thing every day for a few days in a row. But I've known, I knew somebody I used to work with every single day, chicken with broccoli, every single day for two years. Same meal for lunch wow. every day. Wow. I eat fajitas a lot. I make them at, my, at home. Just like shredded taco cheese and a fajita, put it on the flat pan that you put over the uh, on the stove, fold it over. I eat that probably almost every day, but not every day. That's what I eat for breakfast when I go home. Well, so uh, whatever the symbolism of this, the behavior of the people that eat the same thing every day is not doing them any harm. Marion Nestle, who's a professor a professor of nutrition and food studies at NYU, and she's the author of a whole bunch of books about nutrition and the food industry. She says that the consequences of eating the same lunch every day depend on the conse- the contents of that lunch and on of the day's other meals. If your daily lunch contains a variety of healthy foods, she says relax and enjoy it. So there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, there are many things right with it. And uh, they chronicle this all in this, this article. Um, Amanda Respers, 32-year-old software developer in Virginia, once ate a very same home-brought salad, a lettuce, a protein, and a dressing at work for about a year. She liked the simplicity of the formula. Not for me. I like to mix it up. 800-848-WABC. And I love eggs. I have eggs uh, just about every Saturday morning, sometimes Saturday and Sunday, but I always try and mix it up. Sometimes I'll go soft-boiled. Sometimes I'll go poached. Sometimes I'll go omelet. Sometimes I'll go scrambled. Sometimes I'll go over easy. Sometimes I'll go um, sunny side up. Uh, sometimes I'll go shirred. You know, I like to mix it up. 800-848-WABC. Virginia is in the Bronx. Hello, Virginia. Hi, Frank. How are you? Love your show. Well, thank you. I want you. to tell you, I like to eat the same thing every day. I find it very soothing, very calming. It's like a routine. It starts my day. And I just feel comfortable that if I if if I eat the same thing every day, I just feel very relaxed. What is it if that you I, eat every day? An egg. An egg. How is I'll it prepared? Have an egg. I like I like a yolk, so it's turned over, and I like toast with it, and I just find it very delicious. Like that with a cup of coffee, easy. Sometimes tea. That I might change. But so, the thing is. If I don't have that, Frank, I'll feel like I'm missing out on what I love if I change it. See, when I go to one of my favorite restaurants, my favorite Italian restaurant is Michael's of Brooklyn. And there are three or four dishes there that I just love. That's why I like to go there with a big crowd so that we can always get these dishes and and people will try them. But I I always I, I, I understand that because if I don't order whatever the um Seafood Riviera, I feel like I'm missing out on that, but I still feel the obligation to want to try new things. Now, when you say you have an egg with the yolk, so you have it prepared the same way, fried every day? Pretty much. Once in a while, I'll change it. Pretty much. Once in a while, I'll do a scramble because they say the yolk is not as good as when you you know mix it and have the whites with it. So I try to keep it healthy. So once in a while, I'll have a scramble. 
But otherwise, whether it's home or whether I go to a diner, it's my two over easy with my toast. Very well. Hey, whatever's working for you, Virginia, you sound great. And uh, whatever keeps you up early listening to this show. So thank you. Okay, Frank. Bye-bye. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Roger is in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, hi. Uh, people used to uh, uh, laugh at me for, for for quite some time. I'm sure it had been over a year, but uh, I, I take I take to work uh, tuna salad, and I have uh, two or three tuna salad sandwiches uh, every single day. And the, the reason for that, well, first of all, I mean, tuna is reasonably healthy, all right? But I walked into a, a local supermarket one day, and they had a bunch of tuna on sale for 50 cents a can. And then a couple weeks later, they dropped them down to 33 cents a can. So I probably bought at least 100 cans of tuna. Wow. And, uh, yeah, I have them stacked up on the shelves. I have, I have mountain, mountains of them. And so it was tuna every single day. But even before that, I was taking tuna. And even after that, I was taking tuna. And then uh, was every, they were afraid I was going to turn orange because of <laughs> uh, mercury. Well, uh, but I didn't. Roger, do you ever feel like, oh, I don't know, I, I I don't feel like tuna today. Maybe I'll try a BLT. Well, well you know what? I, um, I had a bunch of spices from, from uh, you know, cleaning out my, my mother-in-law's house. And I throw a little bit of this one day. I throw a little bit of that the other day just to experiment. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's the, the little bit of change that I would think. Uh, okay. All right. Well, hey, whatever works for you. Sarah is in Wisconsin. Sarah, is this right? It says you have the same meal every day, all three meals? All three meals. <laughs> Take me through it. What's breakfast? What's lunch? What's dinner? It's kind of it's probably embarrassing to most people, but can I just start with it's it's a function of I'm always a person who's always eaten to live. All right. So it was always a bother. I've never been a cook ever in my life. But anyway, okay. Breakfast is egg beaters, mushrooms, and onions, and uh, God forbid I'm from Wisconsin, low-fat sharp cheddar cheese, okay? Um, Lunch is uh, one slice of sourdough bread with turkey breast, little mayonnaise, and a piece of Swiss cheese. Dinner is a salad with tomatoes and onions and a big dollop of fat-free cottage cheese on top, and lobster chunks, those artificial lobster chunks. Love those because I don't make fish. I wouldn't dream of getting it, you know, you know, really. Bleh. But I figure that kind of takes care of the fish part of it. And uh, and then a low-fat dressing. And that has been, well, I can't say my whole life, but I mean, since I retired two years ago, every day. Sarah, and you know what? Go it ahead. makes going to the grocery store a breeze. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. You know where everything is. I'm in and out. Don't have to think about it. Sarah, do you oh, do you die, do you eat those three meals by yourself every day, or do you eat with other people, like your family or something? No, no, no. I'm I, I live alone, so I I eat it by myself. Which again is another thing because there are certain certain programs I want to watch, and I, you know, I, I've always been pretty scheduled because I own my own business for thirty five years, and of course when I was working 
and taking clients to lunch and things like that, you don't have the choice. But even back then, when I would meet girlfriends and, and have lunch or whatever, they'd just order for me because they'd know exactly what I was going well, to What do you do order. these days? What do you do these days if you um, if you go out to dinner or something? I mean, I would imagine it's difficult to get the salad with the cottage cheese and the lobster chunks exactly how you make it at home. Well, yes. I mean, I'm not completely uh, – well, for lack of a better term, anal about it. I can be flexible. But um, interestingly enough, I've kind of fallen away from my interest in any red meat. Um, I used to, not anymore, don't care about it. So, you know, you can go to just about any restaurant and get a pretty decent salad. And, you know, they'll usually have cottage cheese somewhere in the restaurant, and they can plop it on top if if you ask, you know. So, it's it's so dull, frankly, that <laughs> I've kind of a white diet. It's so dull that um, you can pretty much replicate it anywhere. I mean, it's it's all white in color, basically, except for the eggs. Well, you <laughs> onions know, are white, mushrooms are white, cheese is white. Well, what about you know? I don't know if you've ever read Robert Frost, the uh, the road not taken. No, Do you road, road less travel? Road less travel. Do you ever wonder? About what else is out there? No, because like I started the conversation with you, I have never had an interest. Right. I, no, I hear you. I, I hear you. I, I, I understand that. Well, hey, Sarah, uh, sounds like uh, you're you're no worse for wear uh, in spite of, you know, uh, the same meal every day, all three meals. Uh, God bless you. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, I just have to tell you, Frank, I was a little worried about going on the TV part of this so I could see you because you never want to know how the sausage is made. <laughs> and in Wisconsin, trust me, I know how that is. You're absolutely delightful watching you, too. <laughs> oh, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Uh, wait till you see me at the end of Lent, you know, because yeah, I'm going to be slim and uh, and looking, still look a little bit. Too much like Jabba the Hutt if you want to watch the video stream at uh, WABCRadio.tv. But, uh, again, it's amazing what, um, uh, you know, a few weeks of uh, no booze, no cheese, no bread will do. To, you know, it's a great way to take off weight in a hurry. Jeff is in Suffolk County. Hello, Jeff. Oh, my God. Cottage cheese and lobster. Can what you imagine? On, Can you imagine? <laughs> I'm on Long Island. I mean, lobsters are down the corner. You get a lobster, you get drawn butter, you get a baked potato, you get some, you know, a salad. Anywho, I love to cook, brother. And uh, you got to enjoy. I mean, same meal every day is ludicrous. Well, how come? You, I mean, well, you heard in the case of Sarah, it's easy to shop. She eats to live. She doesn't live to eat. Um why is it ludicrous? Tell me. I kind of think it is too, but tell me why you why you think it is. I kind of live to eat. You know what I mean? Mm. There, there's so many choices. That why would you tie yourself down to one meal? See or one product? Well, look, Jeff, I agree with you. But are you married? Ah, uh, yes, I am. For okay. uh, forty-five years. Well, God bless you. Right now, so the argument against getting married was always the same thing. How can you wake up and go to bed with the same woman or man every single day for the rest of your life? Don't you get bored? Don't you want to try a little variety? 
in some ways, isn't no. Sarah being married to three meals that she loves? I guess so, but I love the woman, and you know, I made a, I made a, I made a contract with God that I would love her till the end of our lives. Yeah, I, I, well, I think that's beautiful. So you made no such contract with the egg salad people. <laughs> I love egg salad, though. I can't wait to see the video for your uh, your aunt's egg salad. Yeah, you got to check it out. Let me know what you think. Thank you. Hey, you know this is actually a great idea from. Uh, Todd Shapiro, who is probably the the foremost PR guru in New York. Who did I see him with the other day? He was hanging around with somebody famous. Uh, you just never know. I mean, you follow Todd Shapiro on Facebook, and every day it's a, it's an experience. But um, so Todd is listening, and he suggested, and I actually love this idea, that he suggested we do an egg salad challenge to see who can make either the best egg salad or the egg salad that most rivals or or the best imitation of my Aunt Camille's egg salad. I think that is actually a great idea, and we could have listeners compete. I think that's a lot of fun. I think that would be good. Let's do that. You know what we'll do? We'll do it the week after Easter when – Everyone has all these hard-boiled eggs to make egg salad with. And then we'll invite, I don't know, we'll invite a dozen listeners to bring their egg salad down here in an egg salad challenge. Matt Blaze, what do we think of this? You like the sound of this? You don't look enthused. Absolutely. Egg salad challenge? Yeah, an egg salad challenge. Yeah, I want to see how how they make it. We'll see uh, the different spices that they use, how they spice it up, how what they change, how they prepare it how much mayonnaise they put in it, what kind of mayonnaise, what kind of eggs they use. There's a whole thing you could do with egg salad. Yeah, no, it sounds uh, – I, I like this idea a lot, Todd, if you're, if you're listening. Thank you. Karen is in Rockland County. Hello, Karen. Hello, Frank. How are you? Uh, I like diversity, so eating the same kind of stuff every day is, to me would be very boring. Too many things to try. I mean, actually, just the other day, I tried sausage that my friend, and I'm not big on sausage because of the, you know, I don't like spices, but I didn't mind this one. The skin part was pretty good. Wait, wait, what was it? The skin of what? Sausage. Oh, I see. Gotcha. Yeah, I couldn't do it every day, though, right? (laughs) No, I couldn't do it every day, but I I liked the skin part. The inside was, my cat liked the inside part. (laughs) I ate the skin part. But to eat it, I mean, like, I'll have a yogurt like every other day or something with a banana, but not every, every, every day. Too many other things to try out there, you know? I I agree. That's what I, you know, my wife always accuses me of having FOMO, that I've got to be everywhere, that I'm always upset (laughs) at missing things. And maybe that's true, because if I were to have the same meal every day, I would be afraid I'd be missing something. Uh, I, you know, I, I would love to try something else. That's what's so fun about brunch buffets. You can try a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You don't have to commit to one meal. Even, even from the time I was a kid, I was like buffets for that reason. You're not locked in. I remember one time I was about, I don't know, first or second grade. And uh, my father and stepmother had taken me to a, a Jewish delicatessen, great Jewish delicatessen. And I, I, I was so upset that 
they wouldn't let me order two sandwiches. I wanted to order a stuffed, maybe I was a little older, maybe I'm third grade, I don't know, but I was upset. I wanted to order a pastrami sandwich and a fried bologna sandwich because I could not choose between the two, and they wouldn't let me do it. They said, look, if you have one and you're still hungry after you eat that one, then you can get the second one. Now, that's a perfectly reasonable position, but I wouldn't hear of it. I threw such a fit, such a fit. Um, because I don't like being locked in, even for one meal. See, that's what's great about like you know, the, the Forlini's experience in Manhattan, or at Michael's of Brooklyn in Manhattan. You get, like, people, everyone gets their own entree, but the pasta course and the appetizer course, I love to have them bring four or five different things, and you could try all of them. Because usually I'm not a family-style guy. I like to get my own thing. But for restaurants that are that good, that would they have like four or five things that you got to try? That that's where I think it works out well. Um, Terry is in Rockland County. Hello, Terry. Hi, Frank. Um, you know the first lady that called you and told you about having the same breakfast every morning. She used the words soothing, calming, and comfortable. And um, years ago, I came to the conclusion about uh, some foods to some people. I think they're a matter of security. And if I can, may I give you an example? Please. Okay. Well, years ago when I was a waitress, um, two men came in. They, um, the older man was in his, I'd say, mid-40s, and the younger man was maybe in his 20s or 30s. And I gave him the order, and when it came to the steak, he said, now listen, this is the way I'd like to have the steak. Tell the cook to burn it, and then cook it for 10 minutes more. <laughs> and I looked at <laughs> You know, it's funny. I, I looked at Go ahead. What? No, no please. No, go no. ahead. No, I mentioned Joe Piscopo's eating habits before. That's how Joe eats it. Joe, if he has to have a steak, he burns the steak beyond recognition. And you have to see the faces these chefs make when he tells them that. And and then he puts ketchup on it. And you said Joe Piscopo likes to have his uh, French toast burned also. That's right. He loves a burnt meal. Absolutely love it. Loves it. Uh, so I looked at the man, you know, for a couple of seconds thinking he's kidding me. And he saw that I wanted a little bit more of an explanation. He said, no, honest, that's the way we like our steak. I went back, told the cook. His name happened to be Frankie. Yeah. <laughs> and Frankie looked at me for a couple of seconds. I said, honest, Frankie, that's what the man said. He said, Okay. When I brought the steaks out to the man, they finished eating. They said it was delicious. They left me a $20 tip. Oh, wonderful. Hey, you don't care how they have their steak as long as they're leaving a $20 tip. Right, Terry? Right. But then I came to the conclusion afterwards, I think it's a matter of security. Maybe his mom burnt the steak when he was young or his wife burnt the steak, you know, when they were first married. But I think to some people, it's a matter of security the way they want to have the same meal the same way every day. Yeah. Well, fair. thank you, Terry. There was over at our old radio station around the corner from there. There was a, I think it closed, but there was a great um, soup place. Actually, no, looks like it's still there. And you would be able, I was obsessed with this soup place. For a while, I was going there, not quite every day, but two or three times a week. And you could get, they had, I don't remember what the prices were, 
but we're talking years ago before I left WABC in uh, January of uh, 2009. You could get a cup of soup and a half a sandwich for some crazy price. And the, the, the soup was great. And they have this, had this one soup that I just loved, which was a, I'm going to see if it's still on the menu. They, it was like a, I'm a seafood fanatic, as you know. It was like a, um, a seafood chowder. It was like a, a crab bisque almost. I think it was. I, I don't remember what it was, but it would come with the sandwich, half a sandwich. Uh, oh, oh, this is what it was. It is still on the menu. It's called the Soup Spot, if anyone wants to go. They're not an advertiser, not promoting them. Um, It was a lobster, shrimp, and salmon bisque. And you can get it, a small with a sandwich and a salad, or a salad, um, for like $8.50. It used to be a lot cheaper, pre-inflation. And it was great. And then I would think to myself, well, you know, by getting this lobster, shrimp, and salmon bisque every day, am I missing out on the Boston clam chowder or the 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 Hungarian mushroom? And I did think that I was, but I couldn't stop eating this. I just love this soup. But this went on for maybe three times a week for four months. No longer that. And I was so obsessed with this place. I told all my coworkers about it. Lou Rafino, who just started working here again. So I worked with Lou. This is going back to 07 and 08. When he starts working here, his first day back here, this is 12 years later. No, more, 14 years later. He said, are you still obsessed with that soup place? <laughs> That's how enthused I was about this soup. But I couldn't do it every day. I couldn't do it. Big Julie's in Brooklyn. Hello, Big Julie. Hey, Frankie, how are you? Hey, Frank, you know, I noticed about all these people that eat the same meal every day, they're all skinny. My wife is one of those. I had friends on my job. My wife, for years, ate Little Debbie um, oatmeal pies with cream on the inside. My wife is still 125 pounds after 30 years. People like us with variety, for some reason, we seem to tend to blow up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? you're right. You're exactly right, I mean, you Julie. think about it. I mean, look at your cat. If your cat ate the same food every day, I got one, one, two cats downstairs that eat the same food every day for the last 10 years. They never gain any weight. Well, they, there's something to it. They, they, they do eat the same food every day. It's cat food. They, they eat a can of cat food every day. There's not much of a deviation. I mean, once in a while, they'll have a treat or something, but they're eating the same thing every day. 800-848-WABC. Um, some people commenting in the Facebook group on my, um, you know, my throat situation. Uh, if you're just tuning in, I mentioned this yesterday. I've had a sore throat since last Wednesday. And I don't know what it is. Until today, I didn't think it was affecting my voice. Today, I think it is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gargling with warm water and salt, drinking tea. I'm taking lozenges. But um, the doctor, the doctor had told me, the PA technically, had told me, uh, one person, Peter, wrote, you're supposed to finish the course of antibiotics. Just because you feel better, you're not supposed to stop taking them. Ask any doctor. Well, Peter, understand, I don't feel better. But the doctor said, if the throat culture comes back negative, stop taking. Because antibiotics aren't meant to cure something that's viral. 
It's meant to cure something that's bacterial. So if you don't have a bacterial infection, there's nothing the antibiotics can really do for you. Uh, 800-848-9222. Joe is in New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, yeah, you already kind of got what I said. Uh, I'm a pharmacist. Uh, a lot of times now, the doctors, when you go for the culture, they'll, uh, they let you go out with like a Z-Pack or uh, an antibiotic augmentin or amoxicillin, and they tell you to start it. But the problem is, you know, half the time or more, it's a virus. And um, some people will swear that the antibiotic makes them feel better. But uh, it, it's really just the virus running its course. Um, and you would have felt better anyway. But you started the antibiotic at a time when, um, you know, it, your body was going to start beating it whether you took the antibiotic or not. So uh, there is an argument. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say there is an argument, though, that when – you really should never, well, you should never take a medicine you're not supposed to be taking. So if you had a virus, um, you know, the antibiotic was not going to do you any good. But um, there also is an argument that is once you start an antibiotic, you finish it because then you leave uh, yourself susceptible to strains of uh, bacteria that, um, that uh, you know, are going to get immune to that, that antibiotic. You see, this is so, why I hate taking these antibiotics. It's such a slippery slope. So should I not finish this or should I finish this? I, they, she gave me a prescription for 10 days, but she said, if the throat culture comes back negative, stop taking it. What do you recommend? Well, but did you have a gap now? Did you kind of stop and now you're going to No. You've been going straight no. through. No, I, I just got the results yesterday. So I took it when I came home. I'm supposed to take it when I, uh, when I go to bed and when I wake up. I, I took it when I went to bed, which was yesterday morning when I got home, and I took it when I um, woke up. Then I got the results, and it said, um, you know, it's normal. And it, now, uh, you know, I, I would take it when I get home in four hours. Um, you know, on the on the off chance that maybe you got a false negative, because uh, sometimes they grow the culture another day or two, and they'll call you back and say, oh, you know, it. It did turn out, you know, sometimes it doesn't show up on the instant and sometimes even on the, the culture. At this point, I would I would just finish it unless you're having like, you know, uh, uh, GI problems. Well, diarrhea, the first day you know, I nausea. did, I, I was having that. So you say finish it. Uh, All yeah, 10 I mean, days. You're going to get somebody else telling you something different. But if it were me, I would just, you know, finish the course and then, you know, it, hopefully by then the virus clears itself. Well, much like Larry David, I'll always trust a pharmacist over a doctor. Very quickly, Pamela in central Jersey. Hello. Yeah, um, well, you always have a, ra- a rasp, and it got better when you were trying to um, – I had talked to you before. Uh, you laid off of the uh, the liquor and the cigars, and for a while there you were sounding good. Last two weeks I did notice that you were getting raspier. It may be organic. You may have a polyp on one of your vocal cords, and polyps swell up like a sack now and again and bother you more uh, – at- sometimes than others. So I would get a camera in there and see what your vocal cords look like. And that wouldn't have been something the doctor saw just sticking the thing down my throat and taking a look around? Absolutely not. You have to go to a specialist in that area. An otolaryngologist. All right. Well, uh, let's see where I am in a couple of days. If that's still the case by next week, then I'll have to do that. Hey, uh, we'll give away $1,000. You want to win $1,000? Be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. You will have to win. You will have to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. These trivia questions, I think, are pretty easy today. So if you want to take your chance, 800-848-9222. Be the seventh caller right now. WABC. Frank Marano. 77. 
One of the uh, most talented young people in America today. She's terrific. She is actually going to perform on the Academy Awards telecast on Sunday. Um, i got to figure out what we're doing for the Academy Awards. Sunday's my wife's birthday, so we largely have to do whatever she wants. But uh, I'm, uh, I'm thinking at least if we can get one more movie in, maybe even two, maybe we'll watch the, the Oscars somewhere. Um, but uh, she is a real talent. We're also playing The Bad Guy. As a tribute to the dearly departed Scott Hall, who, as Razor Ramon, was the bad guy. You know what I ended up doing? Um, I ended up watching that uh, Scott Hall documentary that's on the WWE Network on the Razor's Edge. It was pretty good. It's pretty good. You know, it's a few years old now. So, um, you know, it ends on such an optimistic note with him beating drug addiction and everything else and getting back into shape. It's just such a shame uh, that he died so young. It's real such a sin. All right, um, on to more upbeat matters like... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, John, on the Upper West Side. Hello, John. Hello, Frank. John, you, uh, you're familiar with this contest, right? I am. Okay, so you answer a question correctly. We're just moving on to the next one so that we can run through all 10 of these in 60 seconds. I think you could win. I think you could win. Take okay. a second uh, after each question, answer it. Don't get nervous. You're ready to go. Let's go. What is the first name... Of Walt Disney's most famous male mouse. Mickey. What is the national bird of the United States? Uh, Eagle. What are the three main ingredients in s'mores? Uh, Marshmallows, graham crackers, and... um, God, uh, chocolate. What country gifted the United States the Statue of Liberty? France. What year did man first land on the moon? 1969. What singer set a Guinness World Record last year at the age of 95 by being the oldest artist to release an album of new material? Tony Bennett. What is the term for a baby goat? Kid. What country did the U.S. buy Alaska from? Russia. What company owned WABC before John Katsimatidis bought it? Uh, Disney. Uh, well, you got that one wrong. You did get eight questions correct, which is good enough for 100 bucks, John. Thank you, Frank. As per the John Katsimatidis rule, uh, and the answer to that ninth question was... 
cumulus. He uh, he give, he rescued us from the horrible cumulus empire. Yeah, I think he did too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he got you a hundred bucks, John. He's sending you a check. Thanks. I'm going to put you on hold. Talk to Philippe and give him your information. Okay. Thanks again, Frank. Thank you. All right. Well, that was exciting. Winners do happen here on the other side of midnight. Um, but uh, see, I thought he was going to, he was he's going quickly. I thought he was going to get it. He got hung up on s'mores. Yeah, I was surprised at That's that. That's the thing. Because he got graham cracker, which is a tough one. Right. In the s'mores recipe. Yeah, he got hung up on s'mores. That's the... That's the thing. So yesterday I mentioned how I was going to be filling in on the Bernie and Sid show all week just from 6 to 7. Now, I'm thrilled to do it. I had a great time with Bernie yesterday. It was very nice of him to, um, you know, have me in for the hour. But um, today, and so it's caused a little turmoil at home because Rachel basically said, well, you know, that's when I really rely on you to watch the baby so I can sleep for two hours. And, you know, and I enjoy that time with Carmine as well. But Wednesday, my friend Sal Greco, who I've been telling you about, who's this police officer that is being lynched by the NYPD for being friends with Roger Stone. Wednesday morning, Sal's trial starts before the NYPD, you know, in one police plaza. And... I was hoping to go to the trial, but I don't see any way I can make a 10 a.m. trial. As, and, again, this is important to me, and I want to be there. I just don't see how I could physically do it. Um, by the way, if you want to go and show some support for Sal, I'd love to have our listeners make a big presence. Just go to One Police Plaza at 10 a.m. on Wednesday. Now, then he wants to get together with a bunch of our friends a little bit later in the afternoon to kind of celebrate this episode in his career being over. And so Rachel said, just don't leave early. So I really don't see how I can make it. So I'm very conflicted. So as I I was all set after the show to send a memo to everybody that wanted me to meet with them on Tuesday night or Wednesday night for various things, but I can't make it. And then I see Curtis Sliwa walking around here this morning. And he's walking around in a panic, like he doesn't know what's going on. Now, Curtis usually doesn't know what's going on, but he he rarely looks so panicked about it. So I I said, Curtis, what's the matter? Because he was really agitated. Oh, I lost my phone. Now, I'm wondering what Curtis is doing here. And I tried to ask him, what are you doing here? But he just went into his mode of, oh, I lost my phone. I can't find my phone. So then I get the rundown from Bernie and Sid's producer, Justin. And Justin says that Curtis and Peter King are filling in for Bernie and Sid today. Now, it doesn't say Frank Morano is filling in from six to seven. It just says, Bernie, you know, Peter King and Curtis Lewa are filling in. So I'm not sure if that means that I'm off for the six o'clock hour or that I'm in. And if I'm in and I'm in with Curtis and Peter King, I mean, it's fine if they want to do the show by themselves. Maybe Bernie wasn't feeling well. You don't need three people for that hour. Uh, do we have any idea what the story is, uh, Matt Blaze? I have no idea. I would think you're off if they already have two people on the show. Right. What I'm thinking about is how did Curtis lose his phone when he was texting you earlier? 
You, Wasn't he? you have not worked with Curtis for a long time, <laughs> I can tell. That is the least surprising aspect of that story. Uh, so I asked Justin, does that mean I'm on in the 6 a.m. hour or not? And no response. So, oh. so we don't know. Well, you can try to ask him. All right. Well, we'll see. I can knock on the wall, see if he'll answer. Yeah. Can, can we ask him? <laughs> if, if, if you need to come to the 6 o'clock hour. Yeah. Yeah. Happy okay. to do it, or I'm happy, you know, just to defer to King. Two great guys, by the way, who do a great show. Um, so I'll be happy to see them. All right. Um, also, what else do we have on the on the agenda here? Let me check my oh, speaking of maple syrup, my friend Mario Duray texted me this week. And he um he kind of out of the blue. I haven't seen Mario in a while. Uh, but you know, we keep in touch, you know, it's tough with this schedule. I don't really see much of anybody. Uh, he writes, how are you, Frank? I need an ex. I need your expert opinion. During the COVID charade, I started using genuine maple syrup instead of the concoction commonly known as pancake syrup. Recently, I read an article that said a bottle of genuine maple syrup should be refrigerated after opening instead of being stored in your kitchen pantry. Your thoughts. Now, I had to think about this because in our house, I only use real maple syrup. I'm not a big pancake guy, just, again, because I try to stay away from carbs. But when I do have it, you know, I use real maple syrup. And we don't put it in the refrigerator. We leave it in the pantry. But I was thinking, my friend Joe Piscopo, I get him for his birthday every year. Maple syrup, a giant bottle of really expensive maple syrup. And he loves it. He keeps it in the refrigerator. So I'm starting to wonder, should you refrigerate it, the maple syrup? What do you think? 800-848-WABC. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Um, I didn't have the heart to tell Mario that. His house is one of the houses that I'm buying in the metaverse. So I may, you know, I don't know what I can do once I own all my friends' houses in the metaverse. It'll it'll certainly be be interesting. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a couple of minutes as well. Did we get any sort of uh, conclusion on whether or not I'm in? You are six? not. I'm not in. You do not have to do Bernie and Sid. So that means I can go home at, you know, after I do the... Business report at six at five fifteen or so, which I'm wondering if that means I can get to Sal's thing on Wednesday. I don't know. Very true. I still have this throat issue. I was hoping like the the combination of the throat issue and the schedule might have everybody not feel bad if I wasn't there because people are really looking forward to seeing me at this thing. It's people coming in from out of town and so forth. I don't know. Um. All right. Uh, 15 seconds of fame if you want to call in. If you have a quick thought on this maple syrup situation, I'd love to hear that, either as part of, uh, of 15 seconds of fame or or something else. Uh, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Talk Radio 77 WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Thank you, Andy B., with that terrific theme song. Uh, Christopher Gambino emailing, and you can email me as well, frank.moreno at wabcradio.com. Maple syrup. That's the first time hearing of it. I never refrigerate my maple syrup. Um, by the way, I saw Dan in one of the Ron Concomas had called in about his uh, getting his prize for a previous $1,000 minute contest. Dan, do me a favor. Email me, uh, and I will see to that personally uh, because I know we had some some changes here staff-wise. Uh, email me, and we will make sure that gets out to you. Uh, Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. Frank in Lodi, New Jersey. Give me your take on this maple syrup issue. Yeah, hey, how you doing, uh, Frank? Yeah, um, we were up at my sister-in-law's house up in uh, Connecticut over the weekend, and there's a lot of uh, places up there that, uh, you know, sell the ma- uh, maple syrup, and they have it where they, um, you know, it's fresh, okay? There's no preservatives in it at all. And I was reading the bottle, and it does say at the bottom, refrigerate after opening. And I think that is because it has no preservatives at all. In it. Interesting. Now, what should I do with the syrup that's been sitting in my cupboard unrefrigerated? Well, I, you know, if it's in a dark, cool place, I don't really think it will turn. I mean, taste it a little bit on your tongue. If it tastes funny, <laughs> I'd avoid it. Yeah. Oh boy! All right. Well, thanks yeah. for that. I will. I will advise Mario Duray that he should be refrigerating. Thank you, Frank. Time now for you to be heard for fifteen seconds. It's time for the other side of midnight. This is fifteen seconds of fame. Russell is in Fairview. Good morning, Frank. A little late on the Patty's Day limerick. There was a man old duel who found little red spots on his tool. His doctor, a cynic, said, get out of me, clinic. Wipe off that lipstick, you fool. <laughs> Charles in Queens. An old Myron Cohen joke. A man, an interviewer, was interviewing people for a lumberjack position to chop down trees. Everybody their weight is being interviewed, 250, 300 pounds. One guy is about to interview me with 90 pounds, soaking wet with lead in his pocket. He goes, what are you here for? He goes, to be a lumberjack, chop down trees. The guy, the interviewer says... Where's your experience? He goes to Sahara Forest. (laughs) Sorry. 15 seconds. Roger in Massachusetts. Hey, appoint yourself lifetime borough president of the Metaverse Staten Island. That's an idea. Victor in Manhattan. I know you like uh, Abbott and Costello, but did you know, unbeknownst to you and many, many others, they stole that first uh, who's on first routine from a comedy, a vaudeville comedy uh, team named Howard and Shelton. Back I, did, in- I did not know that. Arnold and Patterson. Yes, throw out your maple syrup. It has to be refrigerated. Uh, Neil on Staten Island. Sunday is also my son Andrew's birthday. And if you take that maple syrup and mix it with life change tea, you'll have a new colonoscopy. <laughs> John on Long Island. If I didn't know, if I didn't love, I love you. Smiley in Brooklyn. Yeah, this is Sally from the uh, fictitious and uh, obvious crime family. When are you to get together with Curtis Lewa and uh, try to be nice to him so you guys get along better? 
Well, thank you, Smiley. That, uh, you know, that's a lot of wisdom there. Usually you need to turn to folks like E. Frank for wisdom like that. Um, all right. That slams the lid on things for today. Uh, the WABC Early News is next. And then Bernie and Sid show coming up at 6 with Peter King and Curtis Lee. I will not be here. I'm going home. Frank Moreno, good day.